Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. A very topsy-turvy globe tonight, as we are in the middle of, what would you call this? Uh, I was discussing this afternoon with anthropologist Dr. Richard Grossinger the kind of context of where we are, because he's an anthropologist, and tomorrow night, Richard will be my guest, and we're going to be talking about big picture stuff, where we are as a planetary civilization. We're going through something, and as he and I will be getting into in some depth tomorrow night, it may be a lot bigger than a lot of people are thinking. So you might want to tune in tomorrow night for what I think is going to be a really intriguing conversation. Before tonight's intriguing conversation, which of course is in a totally different direction. Let me give you a couple of news points, because as you know, uh, a week or so ago, I had a really intriguing conversation with another citizen of Britain, Dr. Chandrawik Singh, and we were discussing the idea that this virus, this thing which has shut down the planet, has changed history, is perhaps the biggest thing in the last, what, at least maybe 100 years, if not longer, had much longer roots than most people looking at this um, would believe. Um, because remember, it's Chandra's model that this this virus could have come literally from space as part of the debris field behind a comet whose tail we crossed. And he bases this on on literally decades of research matching orbital crossings of comets with the sudden eruption of global pandemics going back thousands of years past ancient Egypt and even beyond. So in that correlation, the idea that uh, COVID-19 appeared over the world, part of this set of things that happen every once in a while, uh, is not that far out at all, provided, of course, you have linkage and real data. Well, if you look at uh, Radio with Pictures tonight, item number one. Now, again, remember, the way to get there is you go to our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com. You click on tonight's banner for our guest, Michael Feely, and that extraordinary, gorgeous view of Stonehenge with a real lightning bolt going down in the back. I've got to tell you, folks, it took me a while to find that one, but it kind of encapsulates what Michael and I are going to be discussing tonight. Anyway... Click on that banner on the homepage. That will take you to Michael's guest page tonight. And then click on those fast links underneath to items, my items, Richard. That will take you down to my section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one, according to a study just finished at the University of Cambridge, the coronavirus may have begun 
months earlier than we are thinking, and not in Wuhan, but somewhere toward the southern tier of China. And this is a very controversial finding. It has not yet been peer-reviewed, but I'm noticing an awful lot of these academic papers are being rushed out to the larger peer review, which is us, those who are being affected all over the world. This, of course, would would kind of go along with the idea that it did not come from the bio lab there in Wuhan, and it was not released deliberately by, you know, Chinese military intelligence or U.S. military intelligence or any of the current, uh, you know, very controversial theories that are being floated around the Internet. Well, that's a data point. What's really interesting is that if you go to item number two, there's a recent, like in the last couple of days, um, antibody study published by Stanford University, which suggests that the coronavirus in the United States is far more widespread than previously thought, which comes up against conversations that Ron Gerbron and I have been having about did a lot of people have this early on last fall and not know it because, of course, they are um, uh, basically young and robust and it was like a cold or sniffles and some didn't even have symptoms. And he believes that he may have had it and not known what that it was a new iteration of a coronavirus And remember, the flu season ostensibly peaked much earlier than a lot of people are normally expecting in the fall as opposed to the winter in 2019. And I had a spate of something really weird that I went through that I thought was, you know, the flu. Because delivery folks, even in this desert, come. And before we were all, you know, sheltering in place and social distancing and not, you know, uh, answering the door when the Amazon delivery comes, we you know would greet people normally. And I remember this guy; he was sneezing and coughing, and I told him to stay outside. And he said, "Oh, this is too heavy. I'll bring it in for you." And he did, and I did, and then you know a few days later, I came down with something. Fortunately, I recovered. Fortunately, Ron recovered. Fortunately, I mean, we even have another friend. Um, her name is Dana. And she was in the hospital the, turn of the first of the year with what she said was pneumonia. And I'm now thinking that maybe it was COVID-19. Fortunately, we're all fine. But if this is true, if we have a blood test, there should be antibodies, signatures of our successfully fighting off the virus. Well, this study at Stanford is an antibody study showing that a very, very large percentage of the truly randomized um, list that they uh, went through to get their volunteers to to do the study, and it was it's all discussed in this article, they may in fact have also had it, not realized it because they have antibodies. So is it in fact much more resident in the population of the planet that we in fact have hitherto believed in terms of contact tracing back to, you know, patient zero somewhere in China, 
That's what two sets of independent data from literally two separate continents is now seeming to indicate. This is called science. And it's really interesting because, again, if this thing has been with us for much longer, first report out of Wuhan, it means that it supports the um, Chandra model. And now what we would have to do is to kind of define the latitudes where this object or objects that brought this to us came in, which, as you know, he was saying is between 30 and 50 north. Anyway, it's a really intriguing puzzle. Another piece is item number three. Remember, there used to be an aircraft carrier, or still is, called the uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which is now docked at Guam. Um, They've had a major outbreak, and of the 4,800, give or take, crewmen and women on the ship, um, something like uh, almost 800 have now been measured to carry the virus. What's really intriguing is that over 60% of those tested sailors turn out to have it, and they are symptom-free. They're what are called asymptomatic. Now, one of the um, uh, crewmen has died. There are several in the hospital whose symptoms are very severe. But most of these young, very healthy men and women, who, of course, are like a floating city in a confined space of an aircraft carrier, most of them who are carrying it are totally asymptomatic. I mean, this thing is diabolical. And the more we learn, the more we, and when I say we, I mean scientists, scientific community, the general public, the media, the, the White House, the people at the CDC, all are baffled by the wrinkles, the new facets of this thing, which are constantly turning up. If it was not for the horrible death count, this would be an extraordinary puzzle to be solved because it could portend um, future events if we are in fact dealing with a virus which did not come from a lab, is not been created down here on Earth, but in fact came from the solar system. Who is to say in our model, remember we live in a previously inhabited solar system, and some of these things we think of as natural, called comets, are not in fact comets at all. They are in fact ancient, derelict, enormous ancient, ancient, ancient spacecraft, and they're leaking because they're corroding, they're degrading, they're basically returning to interplanetary dust, eventually given enough time. As they're outgassing, are they in fact releasing a virus which was created in an incredible great interplanetary war millions of years ago? I mean, think of the Think of the scope that we may be dealing with, which is now causing a crisis. And the reason the world and all these separate governments have all gotten together and agreed to make us all stay home is because they alone know where this really has come from. And they alone know how really serious it is. And because of this prohibition about the idea that there's any life anywhere beyond this planet, they cannot, they will not, they dare not tell us. 
Well, we're going to explore more of that tomorrow night with uh, Dr. Grossinger. Item number four. I keep looking for the silver lining in all this because, you know, the old joke about the kid that's getting a a present for his birthday and his family is really kind of like out of Cinderella. And they throw open the door and they say, your present's in there. And he looks and his bedroom is full of horse shit. But because the guy's an optimist, he looks around and he says, well, there must be a pony in here somewhere. On that vein, in that vein, item number four uh, is really interesting because if you take a look at the planet as we're all kind of, you know, uh, station keeping in place, safely socially distancing at home, it's having incredible marvelous effects on the planet, on the biosphere, on the environment. And that article, which uh, let me click on it. I forget where I found it. It's, I believe, from a, a magazine in India. Um, um, can't quite see what it is. Anyway, it's, um, it shows a series of images taken around India and around other parts of the world showing comparisons between environment, the air quality before everybody shut everything down, and now. And the results are striking. Woods that people would see this, I mean, there's, there's uh, citizens of Delhi, for instance, who talk about they have asthma and they can hardly breathe on a normal day. And now they're going outside. They're looking at crystal clear blue skies. They're seeing mountains on the horizon from from Indian cities that they've never seen in their lifetime because the pollution has been like Los Angeles in the 1950s and 60s. This could be a lesson for the world. And there could be a rising clamor like why can't, when we all go back to work, why can't the environment be this every day? And, of course, for that to happen, we have to transition off fossil fuels and you know, natural gas and fuel oil and diesel and all the hydrocarbons that we're burning to maintain civilization. And we need to transition to, A, alternatives, renewables, and, B, the actual physics-based torsion field energy technologies, which also have been suppressed viciously for decade after decade after decade to make someone a buck or a ruble or a, well, fill in the term. Who knows? This, as Richard and I are going to discuss tomorrow night, could be the presaging of something that's an extraordinarily positive transition in human affairs. And it may be that it's going to be up to all of us to kind of push the curve in that direction as opposed to going back to situation normal. Last item. I mean, when I saw this, I just had to put it up tonight. There is everyone, of course, is doing their television shows now from home and they're using green screens. And it's so interesting to ski the, the quality of Skype calls improve radically. I mean, my complaint about Skype for years is that people haven't figured out how to light their home studios. You know, they use the screen light. They use it, – it's been, it's been terrible. It's so interesting to see the transition now. So everybody's home studio has been stiffed up. The lighting is professional. The background is appropriate. Some people use living rooms. Others use kitchens. Some use dens. 
There's a lot of books in the background, but the lighting is good, finally. Now, all they got to do is work on the sound, because the sound is still all over the map. I'm talking even professional news anchors on major networks that cannot seem to get the sound quite right. And the quality sometimes varies, which has to do, I presume, with internet traffic and bandwidth and all that. Well, there's this guy, this weatherman in Indiana, who is doing his weather forecast for Channel 14 uh, from home. Except he's been joined by a partner. So if you look on item number five, his cat, Betty, has become a partner in his weathercasts. And, I mean, you really want to read the story and play the videos because this cat is so cool and so obviously knows exactly what is going on, he said, as a former cat person. How do we know this? Well, just check out that picture. This is John, who is the weatherman, holding Betty, and in front of the map, which is projected on the green screen electronically in the in the camera behind him. And Betty is looking, well, he says that she's very high-strung and nervous, obviously dripping with irony. What I found interesting is because a lot of people are writing in, because he's got a whole Facebook page now devoted to his duo with Betty the cat. They're all wondering if this cat is aware of her celebrity. She's getting fan mail. You know, people are tuning in. He even says it during the broadcast. Well, I know you're just tuning in to see the cat, but it's going to be cold out there tonight. You know, you might want to pay attention to the weather. And if you take a look at that picture, it's obvious that Betty knows exactly what's going on. Because while John is holding her and giving her belly rubs and trying to call attention to the weather on the screen behind him, Where is Betty looking? Is she looking adoringly at her daddy? No. She's looking directly at the camera and all the people, her subjects, tuning in. Our guest this morning is Michael Feely. And to give you a quick overview, Michael is a former UK police officer and now ancient codebreaker who has authored seven books and several additional ebooks on various esoteric subjects, has also been a speaker at various public and international conferences, and is a global radio person, a magazine article writer, and a feature, I'm sorry, I'll do that again, a frequent social media blogger. Michael is currently adopting his work to cater to a younger audience and will soon have a series of children's books to reach out to the next generation and teach many of the truths that are not being taught elsewhere. Michael's appeared on Edge Media TV, The Moore Show, has been featured on Straw Man, The Nature of the Cage, and Elf Street Studios' independent documentary, and he's also appeared on uh, the largest radio show that's opposite ours, Coast to Coast AM, with George, George Norrie, and uh, the the sequence, the follow-on to Art's radio show, Art Bell, uh, Midnight in the Desert. He has had, and we're going to get into this this morning, multiple UFO experiences. He has experienced consciousness entanglements, including remote viewing time travel, and has personally witnessed dimensional portals opening up, emanating from very unorthodox craft. Well, I want to save time to talk to Michael, so 
Instead of reading the rest of the bio, you can go to the other side of midnight, scroll down to the bottom. There is his bio. With that, welcome Michael Feely to the other side of midnight. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, as my grandmother said, it's nice to uh, to have you on. Um, I want to start out with a very basic question. What time in your life did you look around and say, they're not telling us the truth? Probably from about the age of six or seven. Mm. When, yes, when I used to just sit there, I was a very... Very shy, very quiet, very in the shadow, isolated child. And I used to sit there at the age of six and seven and have what I now now believe to be sort of adult conversations with myself. And just thinking how the world, even at that age, doesn't make sense. It, it just doesn't make sense. And how I always felt different as if I didn't belong. And I used to watch famous movies such as the, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And even at the age of six and seven, I was questioning, is this possible? Is there a deeper meaning? Can can a man part the Red Sea? Mm-hmm. So I, I used to have these these great adult conversations at the age of six and seven with myself. And I, and I think I realized at that age that there's something amiss, that there's something not right, uh, which of course now has been confirmed and verified by what I've now found out uh, in later life. Well, you did not take a direct line from those early ideas to to what you're doing now. You kind of made a detour. How the heck did a quiet, shy, intellectual, introverted kid become a cop? Well, it sort of happened in, in my teenage years. And when you start thinking about careers at high school and different things, my it seemed to be in my blood. It seemed to be a, a passion. And that passion lived all through my teenage years until I was of adult age and I was old enough to apply. Was, was, it was, took, when you said passion, you mean you liked figuring out puzzles, weird things, mysteries? I, I, I guess I did. And I also had a passion of, of helping people and protecting people ah. and you know, all, all the things that, that sort of go with that sort of protector energy. And, and I wanted to do that and I wanted to be there for, for people at their point of need, which, which really may sound like a cliche, but it really was a, a sort of true feeling. And because it was such a difficult occupation to actually get into, it probably took me about nine or 10 years wow. to actually to, to actually get in, in, into the force. And I was... So, so you went to uh, high school, we called over here, and then did you go to college? No, I didn't. Uh, my education or state education ended at high school. So I, I left high school and did various various jobs I always knew that when I become determined to do something then there is only one outcome and I would I did many different jobs just to bridge the gap and I always knew that one day I would fulfill my ambition hmm. and really the the, the police I, I, I now deem that my first marriage because I really really was married to that career and I was there in, in England's two largest cities and I policed the front line, uh, routine patrol, dealing with emergency calls, non-emergency calls, different various crimes, being first on scene at hostage situations and homicides. And I was there for 17 years, all in all. Wow. But I, but I never, ever expected to leave. And if somebody had to tell me during my career that after 17 years, I would be leaving and walking out, 
then I probably would have sectioned them into an asylum because that was never, ever going to happen. So it took me a long, long time to get into that career. But once I did, then, of course, I fulfilled that ambition. And as far as I was concerned, I was going to be there for life. Okay, big question coming up. What made you leave? Well, approaching around about 2009, and and it it began to happen. When when I met my wife, who was also a police officer as well, uh, we met in 2006, and our relationship sort of blossomed because we we were were on the same team uh, at the same police station. And over the, the coming months, that relationship blossomed. Now, my wife had had lots and lots of paranormal things happen to her throughout her life, from early childhood all the way through to her, her adult life. Now, when my wife and I got together, something seemingly happened. And from that point, I also began to experience lots of things, and we began to experience lots of things together. Okay, wait, wait, wait. She had paranormal experiences growing up. Did you? Not that I can remember, but Ah. following various messages that have been transmitted to me in various mediums, I have been told that from a very, very early age, I was chosen to do what I'm doing now. Mm. So even though I can't... Have you thought of uh, maybe being hypnotically regressed to see if you did have some events happen, but you've kind of closed them off, put them behind a door in a closet, that kind of thing? I have considered it. The, the, the problem with my mind is it's the same when people say to me, do you do meditations? The, the problem with my mind is because I can't relax it enough sufficiently to enter into these places. So if somebody's trying to hypnotize me, mm. there'd, be a, there'd, be a, there'd be a certain part of me that would be fighting that hypnosis. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. There have been people over the years, because of course you're familiar with the research that I've been doing, and they've said, don't you want to know that you've been contacted by aliens and they told you all this stuff? And I said, no, I want to figure it out myself. <clears throat> is there is there part of that, Michael, that you'd rather do it yourself than kind of open a floodgate that is maybe not you? Well, it is actually uh... – both of those things for, for me, really. Uh, I, I do some, sometimes get downloads of information that fit pieces to this, this gigantic jigsaw. I have been told that a lot of the information that I do present is channeled to me, and, and I do know that to be true because I can actually feel the exact points that that information comes in. Uh, some, sometimes I, I do have that ambition because I want to know. I want to know what what these biblical scriptures really mean, what these monoliths and monuments around the world are really telling us. I I really, really want to know what is not being taught. It is that sort of innate, again, that that innate sort of passion of mine to know and to make all of these connections as to to what are are these ancient cultures and beyond really telling us and what is the message that they've left for us and how can that really enhance our sort of reality, our experience here in, the, in this third dimensional frequency. So for me, it's a real passion to want to know and yes, to piece it together because when, when the pieces do fit together, the, the thrill and the excitement and, and the absolute eureka moments that, that gives is almost like a drug. It's like a chemical fix. So I really do have that passion to, to want to know and to work it out with that 17 years of investigative mind, the investigative training. 
mm-hmm. piecing evidence together, get going get to the scene of a crime. Now that evidence speaks. That evidence is is indisputable. Now, regardless of what eyewitnesses are telling you, that sometimes is different to the genetic evidence or different evidence that are presented to you. And that and that when you when you can start to read this evidence and, and this deeper meaning, this deeper evidence, it speaks a language to you. And that really is part of my makeup, my, part of my actual DNA, part of my genetics, because my genetic line is Irish kings and pharaohs of Egypt. So I have this genetic line that has come through this knowledge base that is still inside my DNA. Hmm. Now, obviously, you can't do the research to confirm that. That's part of what comes from, as you termed a moment ago, these channelings? Now, the, the actual uh, genetic line has, has been traced. So oh. my, my genetic line goes back to the, the Celtic kings of, uh, of ancient Ireland. Now, when you look at my, my family origin, it was then traceable that those Irish kings are related to Ramesses II, How the pharaoh of Egypt. So therefore, my, my genetic line, uh, and again, uh, there's real, real two, two deep passions of mine, which is Egypt and religion. Mm. Uh, I tell you, hold it there. We're at the, at the bottom of the hour. We'll pick this right back up because it's not very often that one of my guests actually can trace his lineage to kings and royalty and other cultures and ancient times. Hmm. My guest this morning is Michael Feely, former uh, police officer in the British Isles in the United Kingdom. I believe when he said two major cities that one of them had to have been London. We'll check that. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, April 18th, the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, all the way from England by means of the Internet. I mean, isn't it, isn't it interesting that we have the Internet to fall back on just when we've needed it? Is that a coincidence or is that timing? Again, we're going to get into the depths of this tomorrow night. Tonight... My guest, Michael Feely, former UK police officer, who now we know can trace his lineage genetically back to the royalty of kings. I mean, Michael, that's an extraordinary uh, statement to be able to make and back up with real science. What prompted you to kind of wonder, how far back does do I go? Well, actually, it was my uh, uncle that uh, a number of years ago, uh, went and actually did an, an official genetic trace of, of my family name. And my family surname means chess player. Feely means chess player. And he actually traced it all the way back to the Herriman Kings of, of Celtic Island. And we've actually got a, a, an official scroll at my house now that, that obviously traces that back to those kings. Now, when you look at there, again, it goes back to ancient Egypt, which for me... Uh, because my passion of Egypt is so strong, and it was so strong before I even realised this fact. You know, it, it's sort of all these synchronicities that that, that come together uh, that you know you know to be true. And when you know, some sometimes in in sleep states, I will get mathematical sequences come come in my head that I have to look into the next day. One of them was the square root of nine three seven. When you look into the square root of nine three seven. It takes you back to the ancient mystery schools of ancient Egypt through uh, the hexagram, the geometric shape of the hexagram, which is wisdom, which then brings you to the bumblebee and the honeycomb, which then brings you to the bra, mari, breath techniques. Uh, so we, we, we have all of this, the, these synchronicities that, that occur in my life as well, both in a waking state and a dream state. Let me just follow this up. Uh, when you say hexagram, are you talking about a six-sided geometric figure? Yes. Yeah, uh, which is obviously in, in nature is the, the honeycomb of the bee. Oh, the my quite. gosh. You have a treat in store for you in the next 30 seconds. Because hexagonal geometry is basically two intertwined three-dimensional tetrahedra in two dimensions, a flat plane. And the tetrahedra are part of an internal energy hyperdimensional connection between planetary processes on Earth and higher dimensional realms. So that hexagram geometric pattern in 2D is the key to everything we're going to be talking about tonight in terms of a real reproducible physics. Absolutely. And, and that is also uh, applicable to the 19.5 degree effect as well. You got it. <laughs> yes. So please continue. So yes, so it was it was traced all the way back to, to Irish kings. Uh, in, in my dream state, I get, as I say, mathematical sequences. I get geometric shapes. The last one was two wavy lines, which turned out to be uh, relating to topology, which is all to do with the properties of, of geometric objects. So it's all geometric, it's all mathematical, it's all the language of the universe because the creator is a mathematician. And even, you know, the likes of Galileo 
said that, that, that mathematics is, is the language in which God route into the universe you know pythagoras all his number mm. so the, these these great scientists of the past knew that mathematics which obviously is also a branch of geometry as well is the the, the universal constant it is the universal language now when you look into geometry it's really i found a a map a universal map where you can actually give your position and your location and when you look into the mathematics that is written into the ancient monuments, which give their exact location, but also give the location of other monuments, including Sidonian City, you realize that it's really a gigantic navigation system. Let me come back to it for, in, in a minute. I want to ask back to your growing up. You say you get these downloads in dreams, but you didn't have any paranormal experiences up until the time that you met your wife, right? To, to my conscious knowledge, no, other than the, the the deep and meaningful thoughts that there was something something more okay. to to reality. Okay, here's 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 the real question: How long have you been having these? We'll call them download dreams. Are they recent? Did they start when you left the force and began looking at ancient mysteries and monuments and megaliths and geometry in them, or have these dreams been with you for for decades? but you didn't understand their meaning until relatively recently. The, the dreams and the messages really have, have started probably since 2009. Ah. 2009, 2009 is, is what, even though I was seeing lots and lots of unorthodox things in the skies, both day and night, leading up to 2009, 2009 was really what I class as my awakening. And I say it was my awakening because that was the consciousness time travel, which I went back to the scene of a crime that little did I realize at the time was actually 159 years previous. Okay, okay. So, let's, let, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves because if we're going to do this where the audience can follow, we have to be rigorously metonymic. We have to go from A to B to C. Otherwise, I'll get lost. Okay, so um, when you met your wife, you were talking before the break that you never imagined you would leave the force. But somehow that meeting with, I would presume we would call her your soulmate, would that be too much? No, that, that is certainly uh, a concept that, that, that we thought of and has been mentioned to us, uh, whatever the soulmate may be, there okay. is certainly a energetic, deeper connection between us. Okay. So that triggered a major change in your life and career and professionalism and all that. Talk about that transition. Okay. Well, initially, uh, obviously meeting someone and, and, and entering into a relationship, it made me realize there was actually more to life than just a career. So that was really the first taking sort of the first diversion away from, from that first marriage. And then there's, there's quite a bit of disillusion coming into it as well for me, where, you know, politics was, was taking a tight grip and, the service was going in the direction that I didn't agree with. So this, this was causing sort of an internal turmoil inside me. And my energies were not matching this particular occupation anymore. When you couple that with all of a sudden, in the space of a very, very short time, literally each day, each night, each week, each month, I was seeing something unusual or experienced firsthand something unusual every single day. And this was making my, my awareness 
expand and it was making me realize that what I thought as a child is actually now true and I was sort of piecing all this together and, and there wasn't a day that went by that something wouldn't occur, something wouldn't happen to me. And I'd be with my wife and things would happen. I'd be with my wife and friends and things would happen and we'd all see the same thing. I'd be by myself and things would happen. It, 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 just, it just seemed that wherever I was at that particular time, it was timed to happen. And regardless of what I was doing, where I was, what I intended to do, this was always timed to happen at this particular moment. And that's really what kicked me out of, of my career. So this was kind of like a, a wake-up call. Literally, it was like, hey, Michael, Michael, you're supposed to be doing this. Remember? This. Well, th that's exactly what, what I feel it was. And it was such a – well, it was actually a traumatic wake-up call that oh. I, couldn't actually, I couldn't actually sleep with the light off in my bedroom for six months because, bear in mind, you know, I'd, I'd seen the, 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 the worst of humanity I'd had guns pointed at oh me. Oh my god, people. yeah. I mean for I, seventeen I, I, years I on the force you must have gone through extraordinary experiences that most of us only see on television. Exactly, but I'd never felt fear until my awakening. Oh uh, and it was extremely traumatic. Okay. You know what's coming. Talk about that transitional moment when something happened and Michael says, Oh, oh, Okay, well, the, the, the story in, in the shortest terms that I can is... Hey, we have three hours. Come on, don't... Oh, don't, you know. great. <laughs> in that case, as I say, uh, my, my wife, Sarah, when, when she was a child, she used to live in Birmingham, which is, again, England's second city. And where her house was situated was on Victorian England farmland, now, by Victorian England, it is a period of time in between 1837 and 1901. So that was classed as Queen Victoria's Victorian England. Mm. And her house, her, her estate, was situated on Victorian farmland. Now, even as a child, her house was, was nicknamed the haunted house of the street because there were so many things that would happen. She would see hands coming out of walls. Oh. Uh, there'd, be, there'd be young children. Uh, her cousins, her friends would... would would come over, they'd go upstairs in the bedroom and play by themselves. But they'd come downstairs and say, can you tell that little girl that I don't want to play with her anymore? <laughs> but, there, but, there, but there was no one there. And this, this sort of... Con so she had her. imaginary friends that weren't imaginary? Well, she, well, she had imaginary friends that other people would see. So, uh, and, and without knowledge of her imaginary friends. So it's, it's all of these different people who were seeing the same thing. Uh, and and diff different things would, would keep occurring in this house, in, in, in this thing. Now, when I think sort of in her a, a, a early 20s, she went to see a friend of the family who was a medium. And this medium said that there's a girl that's around you that looks remarkably like you. And her name is Sarah Jensen. And this girl wants you to look into her death because she's been taken by the hands of another. Now, this was her, her words the hands of another mm. and she wanted my wife to look in into her, her death, her passing. Now, of course she, she didn't at that time, but when my wife and I came together, then I inherited this energy, this energy in the quantum field. I, I inherited this into my energy field and there'd be lots and lots of strange things happening. Wait, 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 wait. Back up energy, quantum field. In other words, when you guys got together, and literally merged psychically, 
you began to, what, experience overlap with her experience and it opened something in you? It did, and it, it was it certainly was overlapped because we were experiencing the same things together at the same time, hmm. seeing the same things. So it was it was certainly as, as if so. She was like a one. trigger to a whole. So I hate this term paranormal because if it's happening, it can't be para. It's got to be real. So she was a catalyst to open a part of you that you'd closed down for decades. I guess she certainly was. Uh, and it was it was at this point that we we connected energetically, psychically, whatever. It, the, the, all this begins to happen. Now, when when as I say when when we got together, then she told me all about the story. I inherited it. There'd be lots and lots of strange things happening in poltergeist activity in my house. There'd be six foot double glass windows shattering from the inside of the house. Oh. There was there, there were scenarios where I could actually feel as if someone was trying to possess my physical body. There was lots and lots of other instances of negativity where it was causing conflict between the wife and I, which I'll get into at the moment because we now know what that is. But we, my wife and I had a private conversation because we, we both went to see the same medium and, and the medium said that this character is still around and she still wants you to look into her death. This is the, so the 20-year-old girl who had been murdered. Well, she actually turned out to be 14. When she when she was murdered, fourteen, one uh, four, fourteen, fourteen, okay. one four, four, fourteen, teenage girl. Uh, all of these things we found out subsequently, but not at the time. And, and she, hang on, she hang still on. Wanted when, to... when when she when she at first your wife, your future wife at first encountered this being, this contact, and this fourteen-year-old girl we now know said she had been, what was the term used at the hands of another? Yep, she'd been taken by the hands of another. And that, that sounds that like being strangled. Very close, very close. And basically, uh, she wanted us both to look into our death. And, and, and my wife and I decided, okay, let's look into this. But we didn't have a date. We didn't have a, a time. So we decided that because this, this girl had obviously been around my wife's house. I was going to say, was she an occupant of the house at some point? Exactly, because this was land where it turned out that oh. she used to live and in, in Victorian England. And... Because this this particular estate was built round about the Second World War, we decided to go back to round about the 1940s. And because we had a name, because we had an area, we actually went to our central library and we spent the whole of the day looking at every death that had been registered in the whole of England, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, under that, that name that we had, Sarah Jensen. But we couldn't find anything. So we had a private meal, a Sunday lunch, and we thought it was a private conversation <laughs> where where we decided that, look, we're not getting any, anywhere with this. We spend the whole day. We, we can't find anything of that name. It's either wrong. What was the name? It was Sarah Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N. And we couldn't find anything. So we decided that we're going to call it quits. It's sort of the end of the investigation, really. From that point on, that's when things start to get dirty. And as I say, these windows would be smashing, the possession would happen. We'd have radiation systems in the house that would go freezing cold. There'd be an energy in the house that made us feel very, very uncomfortable. Now, on it, it was it was the 8th of February. Now, this is the house that's on the ancient Victorian land, right? Where this Jensen person lived. No, that was my wife's childhood home. Oh, now, so this, this is, is your new home. 
this is this is our new home that we moved oh. into. And I, th- I think about 2008, so a year before the the, the 2009 awakening. So this had actually followed us, follows us, and wherever we we're going to go, this this would have followed us there because this girl was now attached to the both of us. But it gets a little more complicated in, in a moment. But it was the the 8th of February 2009 in our time, and it was particularly particularly bad. It, it, there was a bad bad feeling. Uh, we, we'd, we'd, we'd smell flowers, which don't seem to, to appear bad, but there was a wasp, uh, wasp of flowers in the house. There were radiation systems going off. There was a real dark energy that was making us feel. What do you mean radiation systems? I don't get it. Uh, central heating. You know, when you have like radiation. Oh, okay. okay. That, you, uh, mean, that you, mean, you mean the furnace? The f- well, yes, uh, but it's like a radiation system, uh, and that they would go freezing cold instantly. It's, just, it's like... Is this like an old-fashioned hot water radiator? It's yes, but it's more a more modern version. So you have the the, the pipes coming from the radiator, the boiler, which then radiates uh, metal panels on on the. Ah, the I see, I see. So the, these things were going freezing cold in an instant. There was this eerie, oh, eerie entropy changes. Wow. Yeah, and it, it really was noticeable. It was freezing noticeable, and the, there was this there's this eerie feeling that actually made us leave the house and, and this was the Sunday evening of the eighth of February two thousand and nine. Where was the house located? It was it was located probably twenty five minutes from where the original house was. So it wasn't a great deal of distance. Uh it was again just outside Birmingham and my wife's childhood house was actually in Birmingham, which is right in the in central England, in the mm-hmm. middle of the country. Okay. So we had to leave our house and we went to my mother-in-law's house. She was aware of this story from my wife's childhood and she grew up with it. And that there was, a, you know, people in the street had also heard a girl who had supposedly died of, of Val's disease, a uh, disease from rat urine. So, so the, 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 there was actually talk in, in that time of, of, of this family, of this girl. So we actually leave, left, leave the house and we went to the mother-in-law's house. Now it's about 1.30 in the morning, which was now... Monday the 9th of February, the family went to, to bed and, and my wife and I went to bed and, and we, we slept in a downstairs sort of garage garage conversion. And it was on the ground floor of, of the mother-in-law's house, which again was probably 15 minutes away from the original house. So all, all of this is geographically fairly close. Mm. And 1.30 in the morning, that morning, we went to bed, we switched the lights off, we went to sleep. Uh, I'd asked the, the psychic medium who had told us about this, this, this girl. She was going to come the next, the next morning and help us uh, in, in whatever way she could. So we just had to sit the night out, or so we thought. <laughs> now, you know, what, what can happen? She, we'd arranged to meet this psychic medium at 10 a.m. It was now 1.30 in the morning. You know, what can happen in, in just a few hours? Well... It was to change my life because at about 3.30 that morning, which again was still Monday the 9th of February 2009, I vividly and even now remember being in a old wooden bedroom. And I was on what I believe to be one side of the room, maybe on a bed. And I was looking, it wasn't a particularly large area, maybe 10 feet in front of me, there was a window. And that window was covered by blue curtains. At that particular point, there was a wooden door in the right-hand corner of the room which began to open. As the door opened, 
the curtains began to move with the draft from the door. And at that point, I heard a young girl's voice say, here he is. This was her stepfather who entered the room, who used to abuse her. And on this particular morning, which turned out to be 159 years previously in the year 1850, it actually smothered her to keep her quiet and accidentally suffocated her. Mm. I, I was actually witnessing her last moments of life. And I wasn't doing that physically because physically I was in the year 2009 in Birmingham in England. But now, uh, hang on a sec, Michael. Were you having like a lucid dream or were you sound asleep and I'm going to use the wrong term here. Your astral body, whatever, was witnessing 159 years before this event. In other words, how, how did you how did you realize what you were seeing was not just a dream? Because the the events leading up to it, the events so the context, the, the context, and the way in which when I came back to my reality, to my physical body, how I was absolutely screaming oh, in tra- traumatic hysterics uh, to, to to such an extent that it caused a change reaction to my wife, who also began to scream no, wait, wait, hysterically. Wait, wait. You're this hardened police officer. You're watching a 14 year old girl being accidentally killed not murdered just accidentally killed and it terrified you why it because i was feeling the emotions that she was going through. oh so you were so linked and in synchronization it was like you were being killed i was being killed but the end result was different because i was still alive wow talk about a mind um, meld Exactly, and the 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 trauma we we got straight up. We we obviously couldn't sleep. Oh. Uh, we 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 got up. We 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 just pondered, we just paced around the, the house until family got up. We told family what had happened. They began to start feeling symptoms of what we were feeling. Uh, the psychic medium, who had agreed to help us, called us and said, "Sorry, I can't help you anymore." I basically said, "Yes, you are. I'm coming to get, I'm, I'm coming to get you now." <laughs> so we we probably drove about 30, 40 minutes to go and get her. She was on her doorstep. She said that she'd been a psychic medium for a number of years, but this is the first time that she'd been kicked out of her own house. She'd had washing machines lift off the ground. She'd oh, had, my God. She'd, she'd had coffee cups. She put a coffee cup down in the kitchen, and when she went to retrieve it to have the drink of coffee, the cup had been moved, and a silver spoon had actually been put inside the cup. She was having all of these things that were trying to prevent her from helping us. Hmm. There's a, there's a term for that. Uh, oh, my friend David Wilcock calls it negative greeting. <laughs> it sounds to me like it's negative greeting in space. <laughs> it certainly was a negative gre- uh, greeting. And as I say, it, 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 she said it's the first time that she's ever been kicked out of her own house by, by what was going on. Now, when she got to our house, this is when the story was then really revealed in its entirety to us. And the, the girl was present. We felt her presence. She tells us what had happened. What we didn't realize until that point is we also had the assailant in our energy field as well. I was just going to ask you, who was behind throwing the coffee cups and all that in the medium's house? Was it the bad guy or the girl desperately needing to reach out to, for somebody to do something? Well, the, the negative things were the bad guy. This was John Berkshire, mm-hmm. and it was her sort of stepfather. Now, he was also in our energy field. He was the one who was shattering windows in my house. 
it was the one that was trying to actually split up my wife and I through through negativity, through creating conflict, because he wanted this story to remain hidden. Why? Because I mean, he's been dead 150 some years. Why should he give a damn? Because he still wanted the story kept quiet. Now, in in his reality, in his quantum field, in his his quantum existence, his quantum fingerprint, it's still happening. Because what, in the what, quantum what world, what do you mean? Because in the quantum world, time is infinite. There is no separation between past, now, and future. So everything that's happened is one continuous snapshot. So for me. It's already happened and so identity into somebody he, else's time. Is event. he kind of caught in a time loop? He, in, in, in his reality, in his quantum reality, yes, he's still in his time. This is still happening for him then. But if you intervened, if you figured it out, if you released her somehow, we'll get to that in a minute, wouldn't that release him too? He would no longer be in literally hell? Well, he was released eventually, but the amount of resistance that he that he put up, the the psychic medium was ill for six months. Oh my! He was that he was that determined not to go, and but so was she. She didn't want to go either. This uh, is the fourteen-year-old victim. This is the fourteen-year-old victim, and the, there's there's another twist to the story because she did eventually go, and he did eventually go, but he, he did fight. And as I say, the 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 medium was physically ill for six months. But as, as, as this girl was leaving, after she told the story, she said, thank you, I'm sorry, my favourite colours are pink and lilac. And we thought, well, that's a bit strange. What, what relevance is that? A couple of days later, my wife and I had gone out for the day. We came back home, and there was a pink and lilac artificial flower that had been left in, in the house for us. Oh, my. And, the, and we have that. It's a physical artificial pink and lilac flower, which were her favourite colours. Fascinating. Okay, we are coming to the top of the hour. It's amazing. Really, Michael, this is an amazing story, which we shall return to. Um, My guest this morning is Michael Feely, former police officer in the royal service of Her Majesty. What a story. But don't go away because it gets better. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. side of midnight.com tune in to listen to richard c hoagland and his fascinating guests 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Saturday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. And midnight is when things go bump in the night. My guest this morning, Michael Thiele, he's not telling us a bedtime story. He's telling us of his reality and connection with an other, an other that fought back and did not want to leave. Michael how did you break the loop? How did you crack the code? How did you liberate her and send him wherever he was going to go? Well, what happened again, it was, it was mainly the, the, the psychic medium who did this. And as I say, she had to get help from the other side uh, because he was so, so strong. His energy was so strong. As I say, physically, she was ill for six months. Uh, but he was eventually, how, how they did that, I, I don't know. That was never disclosed. But hence to say, he was taken back. She was convinced. Uh, she was spoken to. She was convinced that it was the right thing to do. And she went to wherever it is that, that the spirits who are, you know, can, can drift in and out of our time and can physically react from a, a place that is non-physical. She went back to there. And as I say, she did leave us the sign a couple of days later, that, that all, was, all was well, and she was all that fine. That was the flower. That was the flower, the pink and lilac flower, which, as I say, wasn't ours. It didn't belong in our house. It wasn't there before we, we left and locked the doors, but it was there when we came home. So she, she'd obviously been back and, and put some sign uh, that we would know was from her because that it was a pink and lilac flower, and her parting words were, my favorite colors are pink and lilac. Hmm. Well, if I was talking to anybody else and I hadn't had my own experience of someone no longer here who had for a while been sending me three-dimensional physical objects from somewhere, I guess I'd be a little more skeptical, but I'm not because I've, it's happened to me. So this was her parting gift. You had, you had released her. Now, you said you don't know where she went. Kind of expand on that. Why not? Because there is so much that is around us in in these multidimensional realms you know where we have we have such things as dimensions we have extra dimensions which are additional uh, time and space even, even genetics even dna as these extra dimensions they are all over the all over the universe you know my, my father's house has many rooms it says in the bible he's talking about these dimensions these different frequencies mm. within different mentions within different rooms I so, think, so i think he said mansions meaning they're Really classy rooms. <laughs> yes, which was then later 
transcribed as rooms and mansions and rooms. But he thought he, he was, he was the, the writer of that was talking about all of these different rooms, these dimensional frequencies, these these different places, pockets of places within the universe. So there are so many different places that they can exist. We, we, we go from by collapsing the wave function in science, we can turn a wave into particles, which is matter. So we can we get we can go from the all possibility to three-dimensional matter, three-dimensional material. And of course, we can go back again the other way. And this is really observed into existence. So there's so many different places that she could be, you know, the other the other side, the reception room, whatever you wish to call it. There's so many different places that there is 99.99999% of the frequency spectrum that human beings within their, their prison of five senses do not ordinarily see. So that means that all that we see, all that we sense, all that we smell, all that we experience and touch and feel is considerably less than 1% of that frequency spectrum. That is mm. a wealth, there's a wealth of places. I mean, I'm not sure how you can even put a number on it because I would think it would be much, much smaller. Yeah, again, well, considerably less than 1%. So again, that could be mm. 0.1, it could be 0.1. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's pick up the narrative You've had this extraordinary experience, this fork in the road, like the other side is saying, pay attention, pay attention. What happened next? Well, what happened next is that it took us a good six months, I would say. Uh, as I mentioned previously, you know, I couldn't sleep and the wife couldn't sleep without the light on because what we feared, our real fear is that when we went back to sleep, this would happen again, and that really. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Our... Didn't you have closure? I mean, if she went wherever she's supposed to go, and he went wherever he was supposed to go, didn't you have a feeling of mission accomplished? It certainly was, but we still had that fear. It's it's almost like the scar of a victim. When when you deal with a victim of a crime, right? Even though the per the perpetrator may be in a prison cell for twelve years, that victim still relives that crime every day. Hmm. It is the scar. It is the it is the scar of being the victim of a crime. And, so and is this because you were so interfazed, kind of connected, at a resonance level, that her death, her accidental death, and then all the things that happened subsequently, had been so internalized in you guys, it was like you were again in this mind meld, traumatized as opposed to celebratory. I was completely traumatized. It went to my very essence, to my very core, mm. to, to, to a cellular level of, of the traumatic experience that of what had happened or what had, I'd, I'd witnessed or what I'd relived. Uh, now, was, was so part traumatic. of the trauma, sorry to interrupt, but was part of the trauma because you also had a window on the, a universe you didn't really suspect existed become really palpably real? Well, I, I all. I'd always been open-minded, and I was always accepting. You know, I'd seen even before this event. Uh, but I'd, that's at the intellectual level. It's different experiencing, as opposed to thinking about experiencing. It is, and it, because it was so so personal, because it was so up close, because it was so interlinked with me and my energy and my vessel and my reality and experience here then the trauma of that did live on until it eventually fizzled out. And when it did eventually fizzle out, and, and we always said that at the point that we can actually talk about this without feeling scared, that's when we have closure. 
Mm. And and that and that took six months, probably probably a little less, little longer, but around about six months. Now from from that point on, things continued, and the experiences continued, and again they continued on a daily basis. Okay, okay, okay. Right. That, uh, let's not collapse time here. We got time to do it properly. What was the next thing that happened? Well, the next thing that began to happen was a series of encounters. Uh, and by encounters, I mean physical encounters, as in gigantic, three gigantic cigar-shaped UFOs above us in the sky. There we'd have... Well, but, but you would be going around life normally, going to the park, going to the shopping center, going to the bank, and then what? We'd have all these these wonderful experiences. The, the, the three gigantic cigar-shaped UFOs were on a bright Saturday afternoon beautiful blue skies in the middle of our hometown and we were literally just driving around the roads. I can't remember where we were going, but we were literally just driving somewhere. And I looked up to my right-hand side and side of my wife and there's three gigantic cigar-shaped UFOs just in the sky. When you say gigantic, give me a scale. Give me a feeling for how big. You would be talking probably half a mile long uh, and there were three of them in a triangle in different areas mm-hmm. of the sky. Equilateral triangle? Yes. <laughs> of, there, course. of course, of course, yeah, of course. You know, the, 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 you know, the universal constant, the tetrahedral constant is this yep. triangle. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, a message. So, so let, me, let me, you know, because I'm getting these flashes of interesting thoughts. Was this almost like a positive affirmation? You've made the transition. Uh, where do you see what's coming next? Oh, yes, and, and it did come next, and it didn't stop coming next. Uh, and there was a complete wave of sightings, the, the, these kinds of incidents. Uh, there, was, there was another occasion where I was sitting at home, and I just had this deep desire that I needed to be at a certain location. At the same time, sadly, my wife. Ironically, we then had two friends ring us up uh, independently, saying that, do you want to go to this place tomorrow night? <laughs> so... For anyone who's seen the, the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this is what happened to, to, to the four of us. And we, we did go. So uh, for those people who don't follow the movie, a whole bunch of people all over the world are somehow drawn to Wyoming, to Devil's Tower, and they don't know why. So this was kind of like the same thing. You were being drawn to a place by cues and, and friends saying, let's go there but you don't know what's going to happen. That's right. And ironically, it was a place that was an hour's drive away. We all went in the same vehicle. We all had the same feelings that we needed to be there. So we arranged it. Wow. Uh, we obviously discussed that we'd also felt that we needed to be there. Uh, these other two people were spiritual as well. So, you know, they, they were sort of on board. Ironically, it was, a, it was a hill that was maybe about 200, 250 feet uh, in the air. And on top of this hill, there were four stone monoliths. There were four of us, and there were four stone monoliths. We had the feeling that we needed to stand by a monolith each. Mm. And then when we, when we stood by the monolith each, we had the feeling that we had to all move anti-clockwise to the next monolith and so on. So we went back to the same position that we started from, almost like a baseball home run. Were the monoliths in a line or in a circle? They were a circle. Well, there were four of them, but there was as close to a circle 
as they could have been situated as, as a foursome. Okay. Were they the only surviving four of many more? No, they, they were the only four of the creation of four. Oh, my. Like they were waiting for you. They were on this particular evening. I was given mental images of what I would see. Now, what I saw is is the four of us standing on the hill. Now, the, the view is you could see for literally 20, 30 mile in a free, a complete 360. It was it was nighttime, so all we could see was lights, street lights. Mm-hmm. But that is also what I'd seen in the mental image. What I'd also seen in the mental image was orbs coming from every direction into this monolith circle. Now, when we look back at the photographs, that's exactly what occurred. We're talking about the cliched little glowing orbs that are seen in photos, right? That's correct. And again, there's, there's a science for what they are. But, but yes, in, in essence, we're talking about the, the self-radiant balls of light. Did that you take video? Orbs. We took photographs. Uh, no video. Because we, no, because we, uh, we, we couldn't actually see anything with the physical eyes. So I was oh, really? Yeah, we couldn't. I've, I've seen orbs with, with my physical eyes. Then how times. did you know to take pictures? Because we always did. And you mean you'd go someplace and you know there was something invisible going on around you, so you'd take lots of pictures to kind of cover the area, even if you didn't see anything with your eyes. Exactly. There was a there was another occasion where we were in in dense forestry, uh, and and there's there's many incidents of this dense forestry. One of them was what I call my Rendlesham Forest. But this one particular incident, I was just walking through dense forestry in pitch black of night with, with my wife and a friend and all of a sudden I felt something attach itself to my right shoulder and I said to my friend take a photograph of my right shoulder and he did and there's a gigantic orb with a rod inside it now obviously rods are, are debatable as to what they are yeah but there, there was a rod inside this gigantic orb that I, I actually phys- physically felt so this would be like a scepter with a rod sticking out of it it would it would. And it was, was the rod huge... sticking into you? No, it was on. It was inside the circle, but it was in the top right hand. I can't say corner because it was a circle, but it, but it's in the top right hand side of the circle. And this circle was at like the one or two o'clock position. It was on my shoulder. Say so yes, two o'clock position. But it was so large, it was probably half the size of my body. Now oh, I'm my... six feet tall. Oh, oh, like three or four feet. Okay. Yeah, and it was a gigantic orb with a rod inside. Hmm. And what was it doing? It was just attaching itself to me, and it why, was just why? Well, because it was at a time where everything was doing that. Where you know I, we'd walk into the into the same forestry weeks later. Dense forestry it was so dark in, in in the forest you couldn't actually see in front of you. Now. All of a sudden, this beautiful bright light, white light, appeared in the trees that were so bright you couldn't look into it, and then just just appeared in dense forestry. And and you know, I, I call it my Rendlesham Forest because it was some kind right. of. And you saw that with your eyes. We we all saw that with our eyes. Uh, ironically, my wife had a camera phone which she had in her hand, <laughs> which actually took a fa- which took a photograph itself. Or someone took it for you. Or someone pressed the button, but it went <laughs> off by itself and took a picture of this, mm. this, this well, this, this white anomaly that in, in the middle of trees, and it was it was gigantic. It, it sort of filled 
the, 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 the vision of your eyes. Okay, the obvious question then is why? What was the message? Was there a pattern? Was there a geographic pattern? Was there a time pattern? Were you being led somewhere to, to some kind of awakening awareness? Why were these things, and I'll use your term, attaching themselves to you? The, the the message that has come obviously that that is a question that I that I pondered over and asked for many years as to what why why is somebody who's been literally thrown out of their career their lifelong career for what for what purpose what is what is all of these things happening why is it why is this one individual who is amongst other individuals but this one individual that is experiencing so much and the message that came back and it was only this, this message only came 12 months ago bearing in mind it's been a decade. That I've, that, that I've been experiencing. And, and the message was basically that you had to experience it, you had to live it in order to understand and know what was happening. Hmm. Now, Back to what we talked about maybe an hour ago. Yep. And, and, and my, my phrase for, for that message was, you can't talk about wine without having knowledge of wine. Of course, of course. Yes. Okay. All right. So, and that that was sort of my my phrase that that put in into some kind of perspective into my mind, so I could understand the message. So you can't talk about wine unless you have knowledge of the grape. Hmm. And it's like why. the difference between you know polls. We're inundated over here with polls, political polls. Everybody's asked, stopped on the street. They call you. They email you. They demand you know, and the actual vote between intellectual modeling and the reality. Yeah, there's there's just so many so many things, you know. We'd literally every day, all the time, uh, there'd be shadow people walking around the house. That uh, there's one incident where it was six o'clock in the morning, and my wife and I were were awoken to a violent shaking of our bedroom door. Hmm. And as I left the bedroom door to see what was happening, as I turned to my left, there was a shadow person walking through the bedroom wall, which is thirty feet in the air. Now, when you say shadow person, are we talking Art Bell type shadow person, almost like a two-dimensional dark Gumby type figure or a three-dimensional person? Why do you call it a shadow person? Because he was a three-dimensional person. And it's the same three-dimensional person that I've seen walking past me in forestry. But but, 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 where where does the shadow part come in? Because they, they were basically just a silhouette. Uh, a silhouette in the, in the shape of a three-dimensional person. So it is 2D. I mean, is it like, kind of like a moving photo? It, it is. It, it's like, as you would see a person walking through the street and all the dimensions of that person, of that physical person, are the exact same dimensions as I saw, but it was a, a distinctive silhouette, but in the shape of the person. Hmm. And this walk through a wall, they, they walk past me in forestry when I did a talk in San Francisco, just at the end of February, hmm. uh, where in, incidentally, uh, I didn't know at the time, but I've caught a UFO outside the hotel. But even inside the hotel, two days before I gave my talk, there was a shadow person in my room and his head reached the ceiling, which was about seven feet tall. Wow. Hmm. Um, did you get any other information? Than just, uh, did you recognize the person? No, no, I've, I've never recognized any of the shadow people. He, he was literally a silhouette. Uh, so if, if you just imagine a person who is a silhouette, a black silhouette, walking through the street, that's exactly what I've seen. 
Okay, I'm still a little confused. So we're talking about a two-dimensional shadow projection of what would be the shadow of a three-dimensional person if there was a person standing there casting the shadow. Or it was more like a four-dimensional entity casting a three-dimensional shadow because it had the dimensions of the person, which is height, width, and length. So it, it's oh, so it really was a three-dimensional. But you keep yes. talking. So was it dark? You keep talking about shadow. I'm wondering where the shadow's coming from. I must be dense tonight. No, no. Yeah, we had it was dark. It was basically a not not as in an apparition, but a a a dark mass, a, a complete black dark mass, which is like a shadow, but it was it was a three-dimensional person. So there was enough light in it so you could see three-dimensional qualities, but overall it was darker, darker than the normal normal person standing in front of you. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was the dimensions of the person. It was the shape of the person, arms, legs, head, body, neck, but it, it, it wasn't a person with features. It was a black, black entity, a black shadow. Was there any communication? No, the first one I saw was walking away from me out of uh, through the bedroom wall. The second one I saw was walking through trees past me. And I said the third one I saw was in my hotel bedroom. So that there was no interaction. It was a glimpse. The, the, the first two encounters were probably 20 seconds. The one in the hotel room was maybe less, maybe 10 seconds. So that there's been no interaction. There's been a definite, a definite connection through through our presence. Hmm. Okay, officer. Why? Why do you think you were shown these, or were you? Was it inadvertent? Did were you kind of betwixt and between dimensions yourself, and that's how you could see another reality that was oblivious to your witnessing it or them? Yeah, I think I'm. I'm, I'm many of the the, if not all of them. All of the experiences that, that I've encountered have been where my frequency has matched their ah. frequency. So, so when, then the question you, is, what were you doing just before you saw them? Nothing out of the ordinary. Mm. Then why did the frequency change so you could see them? Maybe my frequency changed. Maybe their frequency changed. Uh, there, there was a compatible frequency that enabled us to, well, at least me to see them. They, they could probably see me beforehand. But in order for me to see them, there was some kind of frequency change that was either mind lifting or theirs reducing. Hmm. And again, scientifically, you can then go into spontaneous self-organization and, and, and different science branches. But, but in effect, my, my, my frequency matched theirs and I was able to visibly see them. Did you ever try to correlate when you saw these apparitions with a certain time of day, with a certain celestial configuration of sun, moon, planets, uh, where you were on, on the earth, this is obviously England, I guess. Um, did you try to look for those kind of doorway moments? I, I, I didn't because there were so many of them. And Oh, so it's more than three. Well, there's three shadow people, but, but this is sort of in between the shadow people, then UFOs, and then, then going out on night duty in, in, in a patrol car and seen uh, literally a wormhole opening up in the sky and out of that wormhole there was a definitive craft that, that wormhole then dissipated and the craft continued across the sky this was sort of in between a potential uf okay so you're still on the force you're still going on patrol did you have a partner 
Yes. Uh, Did on they number- see anything? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, on, on, on a couple of occasions, my partner was my wife. On some of the ah. occasions, my wife wasn't my partner. So they my didn't. Partner. So they didn't have a regulation that men and women in the same um, uh, precinct did not go out together. No, no, we, 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 you used to work with whoever, you know, the, the supervisor of that particular uh, team decided was going to work together that, that, that day. So that there's no, you, you work together with, with who they tell you to work with, and it just happened on this occasion. So they had, no, they had no regs against men and women, my, man and wife, being on the same patrol? No, because we were actually partners rather than man and wife at the time. When, when we became man and wife, then... It wasn't long after that we actually left. It was only 12 months after oh, we left. Man, I see. Okay. Man, man and wife weren't particularly allowed to work together, but we weren't. So man this and wife was prior to. Okay, okay. Just wanted to, because. Yeah. All right. So all right. Well, your wife obviously is is a witness that <clears throat> I don't think we could count on because again, you know, it's that relationship. Um, was there any strangers with you and any other officers who saw some of these events? Absolutely. There, there's one. Occasion again on night duty, and myself and another partner who's not my wife, we just left this house and we were actually with paramedics, a couple of paramedics, and we looked into the night sky and coming towards us, there was this ball of fire. And we, even the paramedics, looked up and said, What's that? So there was me and another officer and two paramedics who witnessed this ball of light that came over us twice in the same trajectory of sky. And it was completely silent. It was a ball of fire because we were only about five or six miles away from an international airport. My initial feeling was that it was an airplane on fire. But when it came over us, it, it wasn't. And it came over twice. I radioed my wife and said, you may well have missed it by now, but maybe come to this area and have a look at this. Now, by the, as she arrived at this area, this was the second trajectory of this ball of fire. So it had actually waited for her to arrive at the scene. It then came over again and she saw it and she saw it with her partner. So you've now got four police officers and two paramedics who witnessed this ball of fire. We took a photograph of this ball of fire, which the photograph bears no resemblance to what the naked eye saw. Mm. The photograph shows some kind of probe or some kind of thing coming off this ball of fire. Now, you mean, you mean it had, it had geometry in the photo, but it was just a glowing ball to your eyes? To the eye. And it's one of the photographs that, that you have possession of. It's the one, the green-looking stick thing coming from. Oh, oh number, number seven oh. in your radio with pictures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, and that, there that, appears that to be a spectral uh, line coming from it. Yeah, but, but this was the, the, the ball of fire that two paramedics and four police officers have seen. Now, another twist to this is literally weeks later, in, in the same region of Sky, the police helicopter was just leaving an incident, and as he was flying back to the international airport, his base, he was followed by a ball of fire. This ball of fire was caught on inboard cameras, and the airport refused it permission to land until this object had cleared. <laughs> this, was, this was the same description, a ball of fire in the same region of sky within weeks. So you've now got mm. helicopter pilots, navigators, observers, seeing the same thing that four police officers and two paramedics had seen in the same region of sky within weeks of each other. 
Wow. And that is that is the picture that you have. Very intriguing. Okay. We're coming to the bottom of the hour. Uh, when we come back, I want to get into the transition between these events and when you started looking at ancient monuments, ancient messages, and ancient codes. Because, I mean, this is one hell of a doorway for you to walk through, Michael, I got to say. It certainly is, and I'm, I'm glad to walk through it. Well, hold it there. My guest this morning is Michael Feely, former officer in Her Majesty's Police Force in two major British cities, who met his wife, his soulmate, as a partner in one of those precincts, and proceeded to have the most extraordinary experiences as a prelude to what? When he returned, we're going to find out. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudlin and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, April 18th, 2020, in a world that's very different than the world was just a few months ago, but not as different as it could be if the realities that Michael Feely is describing encompass more and more people at a time of transition for this world. Michael, um, how did you wind up from these paranormal experiences, segueing into looking at our very deep and very ancient heritage, the past? 
Well, again, unsurprisingly, there is a story uh, which bridges that connection. Super. I love stories. (laughs) Yes. And in 2010, which again was only a short time after this this event, this this awakening, my my wife and I again decided, you know, we wanted to go on a vacation. And we both had a strong... (laughs) I think you deserved it. (laughs) We did. And we, well... We thought it was a vacation, but we Uh-oh. We, we, we decided really that we, we, we both had this, this strong feeling we needed to go to Egypt. Ah. But, we both, but we, both again, we both again had the same feeling that this is more than a vacation. There, there's, there, there's something more to this. This was going to be more of a, a working holiday. So it wasn't a vacation after all, but we needed to be. Okay, let me stop you there. Because had you always been intrigued with Egypt or was this suddenly... As part of your awakening, I need to be in Egypt. I, I'd had no more of a fascination than, than anybody else huh? uh, at, at, that, at that particular point. So I'd always been fascinated, strongly and deeply fascinated with religion, which, of course, has deep connections to Egypt. But I'd never had any more passion about it than anyone else. But 2010, we decided we were going to go to Egypt. Uh, we booked, we arranged trips you know one of them was going to be the Cairo museum uh quite obviously the pyramids was going to be another one of these trips so we 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 booked an internal flight from Sharm el-Sheikh to Cairo now ironically probably 10 to 14 days before we went we had a strange email or I had a strange email from someone I didn't know who I'd never met who I'd never spoke to and she was a psychic medium from Scotland in the UK and her message started with I have a message for you from my spiritual council and before you know here we go again and that message in essence was regarding your trip to Egypt you will uh, uncover many insights there will be much ancient knowledge added to your toolbox you need to get as close to the right hand side of the Sphinx as you possibly can so wait, wait, wait. And you guys were planning to go to Egypt. You booked your flights and all that. A total stranger calls you up and says, by the way, before your flight to Egypt, <clears throat> is yes, that accurate? But it, but it was by email. And she, oh. she said she had, a, she, she had a message for us. And again, we, we have that email, uh, the, the, the exact transcript. But, but in essence, it was, you will uncover insights that belong to the past, present and future all are from the same place and it will be added to your toolbox so we go to egypt so she got a message from somewhere and felt impelled to communicate to you as someone who has just been kind of born into this new reality and who's going to a place to solve something and she reaches out without any way of knowing in three-dimensional reality what you were going to be doing in other words this is all taking place at a higher level of communication. Well, she said it was a message from our spiritual council. It was specifically for me. This, 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 this is not the council of nine, is it? No, it's not. Okay. Well, she, she said it was different archangels and different spiritual teachers and whatever. She, she basically said it was a spiritual council, which was a collection of hierarchy of, of spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. And they had this message, which was, I would reveal ancient knowledge uh, it will be added to my toolbox, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we go to Egypt. One of the first things we did in the first couple of days was a 4 a.m. flight from Sharm el-Sheikh to Cairo. 
We spent the day in Cairo. As we got to the, the, the Giza plateau, uh, we walked up these very, very narrow corridors, which is, it was so compact, you, you, just, you just couldn't move. You just had to go with the crowd. And as you walk up this very, very narrow concrete slide slope, when you come to the top of that, you mean kind of like a human cattle chute? Exactly. It, it was. It was probably worse than that. You could. You physically. You had to move in the same direction. Ah, uh, Zahi loved to build those things. They did. So you have on the right hand side was going up the slope, on the left hand side was coming down the slope, and 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 that's basically the in and out of this 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 place. So as we got to the top of this slope, as you look to the right, it opens out, and there is the gigantic lion. The Sphinx of Egypt. Mm. Now, ironically, we've been told that we needed to get to the closest possible point to the right hand side of the Sphinx as possible. As we get there, as you can imagine, the right hand the, side as you're standing behind him. Uh, uh, now, as you as you come up to the top of, the, of this little narrow corridor, the right hand side will be where the paw, the front the front paws are. Ah, okay. So, yeah. you sort of, so you're looking at a side angle. Uh, the right, the right-hand side of the Sphinx is where we would have approached from, oh, which I is the side we were told we needed to get to. Okay. But it was, it was a side and view. Uh, so the tail was on the left, the paws and the head were at the, uh, on the right. Mm-hmm. So we get, we get to this place and there's literally nowhere to stand. Miraculously or coincidentally, I don't know. Two people moved out the way, and that allowed myself and my wife oh. to get as, as close to the, the right-hand side of the Sphinx as you possibly could. Now I was expecting. We were told of spiritual messages. We, we, we were t- I was expecting something physically to happen. But for the whole of the trip, nothing happened. I went inside the Great Pyramid after that. Nothing happened. Now you're thinking, well, we've had this message. You know, it's, it's a, bit of a, a bit of a long shot for someone to have sent this message when we come to Egypt in 10 days' time. But, but seemingly nothing has happened. Seven years later, that's when it happened mm. in relation to Egypt. And it started off again. I, I understand well, the seven years, seven tetrahedral spins of a tetrahedron years. <laughs> seven years when 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 the message came into fruition. Hmm. Uh, and that's when I'd, I'd already started to have a fascination about things. But it was really from that point. Wow! Talk about when, deep time and planting seeds. Well, exactly. So so something had happened on some level at that trip, but it it, it was a key. To something that was to happen seven years later. Now I, I, I realised that reality and consciousness are subjective, and I understand that people will have their opinions on what I'm saying. But this is my reality. Now, seven years later, I was walking down a set of steel steps. Where now, are you? This, where, are, where, where, where are you? This, this again is in in uh, in a place called Coventry, which is. 30, 40 minutes away from where I live, but I was by myself. Mm-hmm. And now what I'm about to describe is what I've heard other people describing when they've had similar incidents without knowing that I have had this one. So again, the synchronicities in, in the description. But I was, it was, a, again, the summer's day, bright summer's day. I was walking down a set of steel steps. All of a sudden, I heard a strange whoosh, a kind of whoosh sound. And... Mm, kind of like the doors on Star Trek. Uh, yes, <laughs> but but Captain Kirk didn't didn't come out on this occasion. <laughs> but at, at, that, at that particular point, after the wash, I felt I could see my reality. I still felt in my reality, but it felt as if I was in some kind of bubble, and I was inside of some kind of bubble inside my reality. Now, when I looked 
to my left-hand side. Believe it or not, there's an Egyptian pharaoh walking alongside me. Oh, just but, your average Egyptian pharaoh wandering just, around Coventry. Just, just did he, did, did he ask for directions? <laughs> yeah, yeah, back to Birmingham. But I, I didn't see him because he was in full golden face mask. But strangely, uh, and again, each and every one of us is a multidimensional being. But as I could see this pharaoh walking alongside me on the left-hand side, at the same time, I could see him approaching, but I could also see it as if I was actually looking through his eyes. So there was a multi, in, in that split oh second, there was a multidimensional perspective. So you had a psychic link. There was some kind of psychic link, but again, going back to my bloodline, it makes kind of sense. And there was this, this kind of link. It didn't happen. It probably lasted 30, 40 seconds. It was completely silent. The, it's, you still had my reality, which had traffic and people around, but I couldn't hear them. For, in, inside that bubble, whatever that mm. bubble was, it was silent, completely silent. And then in the click of the fingers, it had ended. Now, within weeks of that happening... So again, sitting, you're looking at the merging of two dimensional realities kind of overlapping... In, into one, which was, for me, 2017, my reality, but I was inside a bubble, maybe another time event, maybe maybe some kind of interlink, some kind of connection. But So you're we reacting to him, time. but is he reacting to you? No, he's walking alongside me in a straight line, looking straight ahead. He didn't even look at me. Ah. But, I, but I'm turning around to my left to look at him. Okay. So, but he, he's, uh, I can, it's difficult to describe, but I can actually remember a strange, it's just like a strange walk, almost like a strut of confidence in, 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 in the Pharaoh. Well, if you're a king and, and you rule all of Egypt, of course you're going to kind of walk with, so, so you were really merging again, a mind meld with another consciousness, or was this one of your, it's going to sound weird, Ancient, 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 ancient relatives in your genetic bloodline. It may, I don't know which one of those it is, but I'm certain that it's one of them. Now, I do, I do have this ancient bloodline. I do have connections to the pharaohs. I do have connections to the high priesthoods of ancient Egypt uh, through, through the kingships of Ireland. So it was either a blood relative or it was some kind of external visitation because that wasn't the only Egyptian visitation that I was to have. Uh, Literally within a couple of weeks of that, I was sitting at home, and as I looked up, there was a scarab beetle manifesting out of the wall. Wait, there, there, there a was blue, a what? There was what? A, a blue scarab beetle. Oh, a scarab. Okay, scarab. The classic scarab beetle that actually manifested out of the, the wall of my house from where I was sitting. So and instead again, of a shadow person, we have a shadow scarab. Now that this was actually. A physical manifestation. Oh, I mean, so it was it, a real. It was, it was a real beetle. The, the 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 image was a real manifestation. So it wasn't a shadow. It was it was blue, a blue scarab that just manifested in, into. It wasn't alive. It wasn't moving. It wasn't moving its legs, but it was a still. So still it was kind of like lapis lazuli, a a a, a jewel, a um, um, what's it? Scarab. It's, it's a three dimensional physical craftsman type object. Yes, but it wasn't a live insect. Got it. But it was a, a scattered beetle. So it was like a still 
still manifestation. And at the same, again, within, within seconds of this, I look down and from my left foot, there is a pure white serpent scurrying away from my foot across the floor. Mm. Now, this, this, this serpent was pure white, so that was albino energy. But yeah, but it, but it had no eyes, it had no face, but it was the, the shape of a serpent. Wriggling. Uh, wriggling across, uh, from, from my left foot, wow. wriggling across the floor. Did it appear to have emanated from your left foot? Yes. Oh. It, it appeared to me to have actually left my left foot and scurried across the floor, and then I just lost sight of it. Okay, question. Uh, Symbolically, yeah. what do wriggling serpents mean in ancient Egyptian mythology? Serpent? which really gave pathway to, to, to the dragon and all, and all the mythology about dragons, the serpent throughout the world really represents wisdom. And oh. that, that's why you see the, the two serpents on the third eye of the, the death mask of King Tutankhamun. Mm. What that is, is the Ida and the Pingala nerve. When they reach the sixth chakra, which is the pineal gland, which is extremely important in, in this ancient code, when these two opposing uh, energies meet the third eye, when they are in equilibrium, when they are, they are in balance, that is a consciousness fusion. And the, the serpent is really symbolic and represents wisdom. Now that goes all the way through Christ. It goes through all I the way through. I was going to say, I seem to remember a biblical reference, wise as serpents, that kind of thing. Does, and it, it also goes into Quetzalcoatl, Kulkakan, which right. basically means... And what about the Caduceus? The Caduceus, yes, the Caduceus is again the Ida and the Pingala, which is the goes either side of the spine and connects at the third eye. So you have again the wisdom of this this equilibrium of these opposing energies. Now that goes through Egypt, it goes through Quetzalcoatl. You have the serpent mound in America. You have uh, Stonehenge, oh. which is relevant to the serpent. You have Christ, who was a carpenter. Carpenter in Aramaic is Nanja, which means the serpent of wisdom. So we have all of the all of this ancient code that really involves wisdom and the serpent. And of course, in many cases, like the King Arthur story, you have dragons and so it, all, it all relates to the same thing. You've got a scarab brooch materializing through your wall. You've got a albino serpent representing wisdom emanating from you from your left foot. Um, meaning? Meaning that most of the, the knowledge of the hidden things in the world and in the ancient world came from Egypt. When you look at the Kabbalah, which is mystical Judaism, which is really oral teachings of the sacred mysteries, that came from Egypt. With a lot of when heavy geometry and mathematics, courtesy of my friend Stan Tennant. Geometry and mathematics is extremely pinnacle. Uh, in, in all of the ancient sites as well. Then you go all the way through to the, the Greek philosophers. The likes of Pythagoras was a, an initiate of the mystery schools of Egypt, which is then obviously translated into the Egyptian philosophy of, of all their gods and their Mount Olympus, which is really the sim symbolism of your higher godlike self, which is mm -hmm. the same as the, the Anunnaki. When you start looking at all of these different codes that have been encrypted around the world, they all relate to wisdom and enlightenment and the knowledge of hidden things. So what did this mean for you? What was your reaction? This meant for me that this was stoking some kind of fire for the, the ancient mysteries, which were really centered 
around the mystery schools of Egypt. Now, the mystery schools of Egypt were pinnacle for the initiations. They were pinnacle for the secrecy of sacred information, which was written into the pyramids. The Great Pyramid is is basically telling us this. Hmm. So this was seven years, give or take, after you'd physically taken the trip to Egypt. Yep, it was 2010 was the trip, and 2017 was when these ancient mysteries began to unfold. Time really does flow differently, doesn't it, in different dimensions? (laughs) Well, it it certainly does, but when it started, what I looked at as, as, as initially different different cultures were individual entities doing their own individual thing what i soon realized and 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 in the end it became a very very simple link of connection i realized that all of these different sites you know you can go from egypt to stonehenge to sidonia you can go to quetzalcoatl you can go to the mesopotamian pyramids the mayan pyramids you can go to the fabric of all religions and what i found is that they were all saying the same thing but they were saying it in different ways. Okay, but that's leaping to the end of the story because we've got seven years, seven tetrahedral years between you going to Egypt and having the Pharaoh appear and then a few days or weeks later, this other apparition. What were you doing in those seven years? Well, those seven years began really the the, the planting of the seeds for what was to come. So I, I began to do research i began to become interested you know i read the the 64 keys of enoch uh, i was looking into all of these kind of mysterious things i was going very very deep into cabals and and who was really in charge of the world and, and, and that kind of thing so the trip to uh, egypt really kicked you into higher gear in looking and looking and looking it did so what it had actually done i believe is even though nothing physically happened that I could see. That you could see, trip. yes, yes. But but there was obviously something happening at a deeper level. What deeper were your dreams like during the seven years? My, my dream, for, for the majority of dreams, I just go into nothingness. I go into the, the blackness of the void and, and I remember nothing. But when I do, it is something that is so prominent that I bring you back with me. Now, when I, when I bring something back with me, which is not, not entirely often, but when I do, it's mathematical sequences, it's hidden messages, it's geometric shapes. So when you say you bring something back, you're talking information, not a physical artifact. Yeah, as in as in symbols, oh, as okay, in okay. symbols that represent what turns out to be sacred knowledge, sacred information. So, you know, they'll, they'll just give me two, for argument's sake, two they, lines. Who are they? Who, well, I have I have interactions with those who, who are members of galactic councils. Now, these, these galactic councils have sometimes have influence over my stage talks. And I was invited to do, a couple of years ago, I was invited to do a UFO conference, a two-day UFO conference. Now, before this UFO conference, I began to get the word ambassador that kept repeating in my head. Uh, I just kept repeating ambassador. Oh, now that's that's provocative. It is. And that almost implies an active tense. Mm, But but he kept, kept ambassador kept, kept coming into my head and like you're being prepared to meet someone. Well, yes. And, and 
the, the, the story unfolds is that this word ambassador kept coming in. And then as I was preparing the talk, I kept getting images that needed to be part of, of my PowerPoint slideshow. And I was also getting messages that needed to be relayed from that talk. So really, were the, was this information, I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I'm going to really follow the details because details, as you know, as an investigator are crucial. Uh, were these, was this information downloaded in your dreams or was it like a visible a vision? You'd be doing something and then suddenly this would pop into, into a reality in front of you. Exactly that way. It was a it was in in an awake conscious state. Oh, well, important, so, so, important so, detail. So 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 these images would be appearing. This this feeling of you need to say this would also wow. come into the into the equation. And so the whole of that particular talk was actually centered around these images, this this feeling, this hyper communication that I needed to put this particular thing to convey this particular message. Now, when, when the day itself arrived, uh, at the end of my talk, somebody came up to me and showed me a picture that they're taken from the audience to the stage. And there's two gigantic orbs either side of me mm. when I was on the stage. Now, in another twist to that... Which nobody, of course, saw. No, nobody saw. The camera picked it up. No one saw. Well, tell a lie. Someone did. <laughs> there was a... I, I didn't see them, but the camera did from, from the audience member. Now, the day after, this was on the Saturday. Now, the day after my second talk on the Sunday, uh, the, one of the organizers, the co-organizer of the event, came up to me after my talk, who ironically is a psychic medium. It seems to be a, a reoccurring theme. Mm -hmm. It was a psychic, psychic medium. You hang out said, with a lot of psychic mediums, i got to say, Michael. <laughs> no, they, they, they hang out with me, but... <laughs> So she, she came up at the end of my, my second talk on the second day, and she said that before my talk, there were two elders in white robes who entered the hall. Mm. And these, these two elders in white robes, whoever they were, had specifically come to hear my talk. Did she describe them in any detail? She said they were higher than biblical stature. They were... You, as, as you would imagine, as you know, grey-haired elders with white robes, right. and there were two of them. So, again, if you go back to the, you know, the galactic councils of Star Trek and and then Star Wars, it, it was that kind of feeling. Which again, mm. but in so she case, saw them as personages. The camera yeah. saw them as orbs. Yep, and I'd had interactions with possibly them oh, on the okay. build on, on the build-up to this because there was some kind of influence as to what needed to be said. And on a greater twist. Months and months later, when I again, because I became, I actually became friends with this organizer as a result of, of, of this talk. Months later, uh, when I was having a conversation with her, she actually said, I keep getting that you're an ambassador. <laughs> totally independent of... Totally independent, without any knowledge of uh, the, the internal message of ambassador that had come in my head. You know, Michael, I, I don't want to leap to the end of the story here, <clears throat> but I have a feeling... You have been prepared for what is coming. I share. I share the feeling. Aha. Uh -huh. See, I was talking at the top of the show about we're going through this huge, huge planetary event. I think this is all preparation for something even more extraordinary to come. This is like the opening act. 
and we don't know mainstream has a clue where this is going. But that ambassador thing has a certain ring to it. Mm, I, I share the sentiments, shall we say. Okay. So the conference was a huge success. Um, you were downloaded certain information. Um, what did you talk about? In other words, was this kind of like your debut? <clears throat> this is what these ancient messages mean? I've been speaking about this this kind of thing uh, for, a, for a couple of years now. I, 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 used, I began talking many, many years ago when, when I first had my awakening, but I, I really discussed the awakening. This, the, these later talks then began to incorporate these ancient messages, these, ah. these encrypted messages. So although I had, I had an, an, an just a few months previously, I'd, I'd done another conference in Glastonbury where I was discussing Egypt and, and ancient sites, but this was the first UFO conference that I'd done. So this, this was really my debut at a specific mm. UFO conference. Now, what I was... But I've noticed in doing, I mean, on a million of these, of course, with Robin, but I've noticed that the lines are blurred. <clears throat> you can't just talk about UFOs. You can't just talk about ancient wisdom. You can't just talk about, you know, mind, body, health. It's all one. And at these conferences, even if they have a certain label, all this generalist information tends to smoosh together and there's a bigger meta message than quote just ufos that's exactly true and what i what i do in my talks is exactly that what 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 people would see as ufos or would see as ghosts or would see as multidimensional spirits or ancient codes is actually one subject and that is what i incorporate into the talk and i take people through a journey which is really how I started, what, where did I come from, and why am I now standing on this stage in front of you? That, that is really the start of the talk, and then I'll go on this journey that takes them through the whole of this, this, this ancient blueprint that goes on Earth and beyond, and then at the end, it all gets tied together as that one singular message. Hmm. Okay, well, to hold it there, we're at the top of the hour. My guest is Michael Feely. We're having an extraordinary journey. We're going to be joined by John Francis. Not right away, John, so you can relax. Because um, I want to get into the substance of these messages, these ancient codes, and what prompted Michael to kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, crack the code. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you leave now, you will not hear the end of the story. We shall return. Thank you. 
side of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. On this Saturday night, April 18th of 2020, my guest this morning is Michael Feely, who's taking us on a journey, a personal journey from 3D to 4D, 5D, and I guess we could keep going. Right, Michael? We can to infinite D. It really is a, a complete minefield of just openness. So the connection between the Egypt trip and the presentations, you figured out quite a few things about, I guess, the Great Pyramid to start with a classic ancient monument. And some of what you sent me earlier was kind of new. I'd, I'd never encountered that idea before. So why don't you tell the audience some of the insights that you uh, figured out about the Great Pyramid itself? Okay, well, again, if you can just uh, imagine the scene, a, a lot of the things that I, I come across and, and think about is really an idea. Now, if you imagine all of those hundred year, of years ago when Isaac Newton saw an apple fall out of a tree and he asked the question, why did it fall down and not float up? And that gave us the whole concept of Newton's gravity. Hmm. Now, for, for me, it, it's Which, kind of Which, by the way, according to history, occurred during a period of social distancing... Because of the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, which I found stunningly appropriate for a, for a segue. Go ahead. Everything happens in cycles. But yeah, if you can just imagine that that idea then formulated this this scientific gravity and, and this you know the theory of everything and, and the, the, this physical uh, the physics of science. So that, that's kind of how it works for me. I, I will sometimes get an idea. Now I had an idea 
to do a map overlay of the human head over the Great Pyramid. And it needed to face north because north is really the, the cardinal point of logic and reasoning. And this also relates to the pineal gland. Now, what I, what I realised by doing that is the, the Great Pyramid is really a giant replica of what we call the endocrine system of the human brain. Now, endocrine system, endocrine means secretion within. The pineal gland secretes sort of a, a, a white and, and a gold honey type colored. So let me, let me stop you there. Schwaller de Lubitz is a major um, symbolist researcher and writer of, you know, 100 plus years ago. He, he Im, imprinted the figure of a human over the Temple of Luxor and denoted various parts of it in being symbolically related to the layout of the temple. You did the same thing, and I think you're the only guy that I know that's done this, with the Great Pyramid and the projection of the center of consciousness, the human brain, the human head, on the Great Pyramid and came up with these correlations, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what I found is that where the king's chamber is situated is where the pineal gland is ah. now where where the queen's chamber is situated is where the pituitary gland now that is Osiris and Isis, which is the pineal gland, which is the pituitary gland, which is Atlantis, which is Lemuria. Now, when you do that, you see they correlate to this endocrine system of of of, of, of the brain. Now, because endocrine is secretion within the pineal gland, secretes this white and, and sort of goldy. Uh, secretion, which of course biblically is the land of milk and honey. So what it's really talking about is consciousness. So when you do that, you will notice that the, it's that the Great Pyramid represents and, and marks the exact location of these spiritual systems of the brain. Which now the pineal gland is a crystalline antenna. This antenna, when it's activated, can bring in all of these complex messages and discramble them into a meaningful message, and sometimes even into imagery, which then gives us hieroglyphs. So I found that the Great Pyramid itself was a giant replica of this consciousness system of the brain. Now, when you go further into that, you'll realize that chem, Egypt, alchemy, chemistry, it was really the, the, the forefront of this alchemical system. Now, alchemy speaks highly in, in deeper terms of sexual alchemy. That then goes, we won't go off course, but then that, that goes into the identity of Christ and, and all different things. But this sexual alchemy, is how we transmute not only genetically but physically to a higher realm. Now, when you look at what the pineal gland does, it regulates sex drive. When you look at the pituitary gland, it releases sex hormones. When you look at the tower that is, is inside the Great Pyramid, the Shinto, the pathway to the gods, that tower represents the thalamus, which deals with erectile stimulation. When you look at the subterranean chambers, and even the likes of Graham Hancock doesn't know what the subterranean uh, chambers represent. What they represent is the subconscious mind. Now, the subconscious mind releases sex pheromones. So we have a wonderful, uh, gigantic pyramid, tetrahedron, in the middle of the desert that is talking about sexual alchemy and how to transmute and activate your consciousness. Now, the reason there are nine pyramids in total is because number nine. Is, when you say nine, you mean on the Giza complex? On the on the Giza complex. The so big ones and the, and the little ones, the so-called Queen's yeah. Pyramids, which Egyptologists have just called them that. They don't know they ever did anything with a queen, but 
no, there's nothing to do with the Queen. It, uh, it's, it's basically the, it's, it's the number nine, which is esoteric completed man. Now, the nine stages of alchemy are completed by the transmutation that was in the Great Pyramid. Mm. Now, of course, you have to, in order to become an initiate of the Great Pyramid, you have to first go through the gigantic guardian, that is the Sphinx. Now, the Sphinx is representing overcoming animal instinct, the spasm of the animal. And this then goes into sexual alchemy and how to, uh, how to use... Well, 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 specifically, the Sphinx is a giant cat, a feline animal. It represents the four beasts of the biblical Garden of Eden, which is really, it is talking about, it's symbolic of man overcoming his animal instinct, which then takes us into the likes of the Minotaur and where you have half-human, half-beast because it, it represents that you must overcome your animal instinct. You must become the complete human in order to transmute and to communicate with the higher realms. When you start using the spasm of the animal, which is passion, which is lust, you will not enter through the Sphinx to become an initiate. You have to be a balanced vehicle. You have to be a purified vehicle. You have to have cleansed the seven unclean spirits of the Christ story. Those seven unclean spirits are the seven chakras. So you have to become this completed, non-animalistic human soul in order to pass through the Sphinx to become an initiate of the pyramids. Once you've passed those initiation, you have then reached Godhead. So we have this, this Giza complex that is also given as the exact location of un other monuments, parts of Sidonia, part uh, Stonehenge. It's telling us how to find them. But in essence, it is a Giza plateau that is talking about a completed esoteric man. You're familiar with the idea that there's a, a geometric mathematical relationship between Sidonia, the face, the DNM pyramid and all that, and what's at Giza, right? Absolutely. And the, the coordinates of these monuments are giving you the precise location of the other monuments. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Through uh, trig functions, actually. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, there's lots and lots of mathematical coordinates that are really pinpointing these different locations, not only on Earth, but on, on Sidonia and vice versa. So there's, there's this gigantic mathematical matrix, geometric matrix of, of a navigation system. Okay, uh, let, me, let me back up a minute because you're giving us conclusions. As a police investigator, I'd also like to know how you got to these conclusions. And we don't have a lot of time, but sketch out some of the investigatory process that allows you tonight to say on, on the show, this is the way it is. Okay. When, in, in terms of, of human consciousness, when you look into the deep, deep mystery school teachings, they talk about the human vessel. That human vessel has been godlike. And we become separated from that godlike state. Now, in order to return to that godlike state, there's certain rituals, there's certain practices, there's certain things that need to be done. Now, scientifically proven through certain breath techniques, through now, now all of these sites are also resonance chambers that are inducing and using certain resonances like. The pi, the golden ratio, Fibonacci sequence, all of these are consciousness frequencies. And they are they were 
washing them and using them to, to create this purified vessel. So when you start looking into... Are we talking about chambers in the pyramid, in the Great Pyramid? We, yes, we are. And we're also talking of the likes of uh, Stonehenge, which are, I've, I've personally been inside the center circles and had true tunnel rills. We've had the circle singing. So that they are basically resonance chambers that, that transmute even DNA. Mm. It's almost like you were eavesdropping on my conversation with Maria Wheatley some months ago. We were talking about setting up a sound simulation on live television to demonstrate the remarkable torsion field aspects of acoustic stimulation of the resonance of Stonehenge. And, and I've done that, and I've been inside when, when that has happened. Wow. And when you, when you start looking, you know, the, the, when, when we have a, a modern so, day, You mean you were there with the chorus? Now, we, I, I was there with a group who I, I took on a tour because I, I do sometimes the tours of ancient sites with, with groups. Okay, I think there's a uh, photograph, number four, in your uh, section of Radio with Pictures tonight. There's a, you against Stonehenge with a bunch of folks standing around you. That the, the person who took that photograph stood with us in the center and used tonal rills to activate the but harmonics but of the stones. What is a tonal rill? Uh, tonal rill is, is, is uh, an ancient practice where they could emit certain frequencies and harmonics from their voice. So okay. it's basically like, like, like they were using their voice as an instrument with different notes, with different so chords. So is this one individual doing this or all of the folks around you there as a chorus? It was the one individual who was doing this, but she was creating a chorus through the stones. So oh, it was actually wow. the stones that were the chorus. Did anybody and record this? That, no, because oh. she did it off the spare of the moment, which, ah. was real, which was a real annoyance because nobody knew she was going to do it. She was, uh, she was a guest. She was one of the group, and she just stood there oh, and just did darn. it. Oh, But nobody had a it. phone to record something amazing <laughs> like that. Ah. I know, and it's, it, it just happened. Can I mean, you do I, it I was, again? Can you go back? We, we will. Because this is exactly what Marie and I were talking about because – it's all about ultimately in 3D, the way you connect to the higher dimensional energy is through acoustics, sound. Yeah. There's amazing things you can do with sound, including analyze this COVID-19 virus in various people. That's a whole other discussion that we may get into tomorrow night. But this is – you didn't record it. Ah! But, but we will. Oh, good. Because we good. did it. We, we did it. And you got to promise, was... Michael, when you do it, you'll I... come back and play it for us. <laughs> I, I promise. Thank I you. promise. Thank you. And obviously, at the moment, everyone's banned from going there because of what's going on in the well, world. But we will do it, and we will record it because it was it was amazing, and and the stones really were that chorus. My God! And, now, and, of course, and, and they, this they, leaps they, over they, into the whole idea of Gobekli Tepe. Yes. You know those giant things standing in the middle of those ovals? Yeah. Those are yeah, tuning sure. forks. <clears throat> they are. It's so obvious it. that they were designed to resonate with the physics by means of acoustic chorus activation. They were exactly, and so was the inside of the pyramid. So was the all, all the standing stones of Karnak in France. Wow. All of these monoliths around the world, which are crystalline antennas. Can you imagine doing this on live television, all over It'd the be world? Fantastic. Especially if, bear in mind that the Great Pyramid is the centre of all this. Uh, if, if you were to, to to do all this on all of these ancient sites, I think you would light the world up like a light bulb. Hmm. Because then they would all go down the energy lines. In this time of transition, remember they had a big concert tonight 
uh, I forget what it was, it was, you know, together at home or something on, on NBC and they had a whole bunch of stars and all that, but they were just performing normally. If they could do that at a place like this and resonate the world, the, the whole purpose of this is to raise the frequency of your consciousness, right? It is, and that's exactly what it was what it was being used for. And that is the same principle of Nazca lines. That is the same principle of hidden messages within the sound waves of the geometry of crop circles. It, it, it is beautiful sound that has harmonics. And I'm not quite talk- sure how the two-dimensional lines in Nazca can resonate. I think you need a three-dimensional structure, but maybe it was the imprint of the methodology left as as, a, as an echo, as a memory. There in the desert in Nazca. When when you have different sounds, now when somebody looks at a snow flag for argument's sake and they see the beautiful geometric pattern, that's the sound of the atmosphere that is creating that pattern. So sound, that the universe, one verse, the verse is a metrical rhythm. So we're talking maths and sound. So we have a lot of sound, and and mainstream science tells us that there is no sound in space because there is no medium for it, which is wrong because light is a medium for sound. And that was proved by Alexander Graham Bell before he, before he created the, the telephone. He created what was called the photophone, which proved that light is a medium for sound. So that is wrong when, when they tell you that, that sound can't travel through space. But all of these, 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 okay. different, things, these different things are resonance chambers to induce this higher consciousness. And they were all connected. They, were, they weren't individual projects. Stonehenge was an individual to the Great Pyramid or vice versa. They were all connected and they were, they were all singing from the same hymn sheet. Now, when you say they were all connected, are you familiar with the work of Carl Monk? Yes. Okay. So are you yes. talking about his research? No, I'm talking about – his research does prove the, the point mathematically. What, what I'm saying is through, through the message – through the practices that these induced and these invoked, when you see, when you treat all of these different civilizations initially as individuals, like I did, and then all of a sudden you see the same geometry, the same mathematics, the same messages, the same practices, the same rituals, everything is all connecting. That builds up a picture that they're actually talking from the same hymn sheet here. They're actually translating the same <laughs> message. Now, when you, when you as my grandmother to, said, they're all singing from the same hymnal. Exactly, and that's exactly right. Now, when when you when you look at the as I say the, the pyramid of Egypt, and you look at consciousness, when you look at Egypt, when you look mm. at the like of the falcon-headed god of Horus, mm. then you know the the falcon is the the modular oblongata, which is the brainstem that then leads you to the eye of Horus. No, wait, 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 Michael, we got to have you back because you make these huge leaps. How do you connect a falcon with an interior brain structure in the human? cranium when you and again when you look at uh, pictures of, of Teote, uh, the egyptian god Teote, and you'll see that he's sitting on a boat often with, with a baboon Teote is a an abbreviation of thought the baboon when you open up the brain the mechanics of the brain represent the baboon that is the olfactory tract so the olfactory tract is the baboon and thought which, te- which is really the, the, the consciousness conduit. When you look at Horus, again, when you open up the brain, and I've, I've seen this, I've personally seen this, the modular oblongata is the shape of a falcon. 
when you look above the modular oblongata, you will see the pineal gland, which is the eye of Horus. So the eye of Horus, the falcon-headed god, is talking about consciousness, enlightenment. See, these interstitial thingies are really important details, Michael. Really important. They are, and, and I, I've physically seen the inside of a brain, and I've seen these things personally. And this so is these were metaphors for human physiology connected to a mechanism of higher consciousness if properly stimulated. Exactly. And, and you find that the gods of all of these different cultures are representing the exact same thing, but just by a different name. Then you get into, you know, what I was talking about. These you mean all these the dual person, personages, animal, human, animal, human, ibis and baboon and, you know, lion and all that. They're all representing the same consciousness connection to physical, you know, the human brain. They're, they all represent consciousness and a lot of that consciousness represents the human brain. When you look at the Islamic god Allah, the abode of Allah is where the three sacred rivers meet. That is the Shushumna, the Ida, and the Pingala nerves, which meet at the third eye. That is the abode of Allah. That is also the cave of Brahma. That is Christ. When you start looking at uh, Yahweh and Jehovah, they are the same thing that represent the, the, the divine forces within, within nature, within the four elements, which then can lead you into the uh, control of the wind and the control of the elements of air, which then can then create certain things. When you start looking at the mind, you can go into crop circles and vacuum domains. When you look at the Great Pyramid, uh, which represents alchemy, sexual alchemy, which is sex, the uh, numerical value of the word sex is 48. When you look at numerology, number 48 is to do with the return of the Messiah. A Messiah is a saviour, and saviour means he who sows the seed. Seed is sperm. We're going back to sexual alchemy. We can make all of these alchemical sexual links throughout of the all of the ancient world. Is... Let me let me ask another question here because this this connects to the idea of during intercourse when the partners are having orgasm is that really a trigger for a doorway to higher dimensional energy information consciousness transduction connection yes but but the the, the ancient practice is really what we call in the modern day celibacy but really uh, technical terms for them is either sexual continence, which is the complete control of energy, which is ejaculation or explosive discharge. So basically you are thrusting that energy upwards towards your consciousness energy centers and not outwards. And it's also sexual sublimation, which again is the same kind of thing. Now what that does is that the, the lower chakras of the body through certain practices, they thrust a, the, your cerebrospinal fluid up to the brain. To the brain and back takes 12 hours. Now again, the, the number 12 and, and, and that comes into another another story. But it thrusts it to the brain. When it's, it's also half a rotation cycle of the planet. It certainly is. And again, that's, that's why I say it's, important. it's also important to time. It's important to the sun, all of these different things. But when this, this energy, and this is again proven, when this energy is thrust upwards, it creates an electromagnetic field which looks like an apple. That is the apple of Eden because Eden is the human body. It's an electromagnetic field that conducts the consciousness experience. Now, when this 
cerebrospinal fluid gets to your consciousness centers, your brain, your Golgotha, your place of skulls, it creates gamma waves. Gamma waves typically vibrate at 40 hertz, which is a super consciousness frequency. That is why in the Bible, the number 40 is used so often. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Life begins at 40. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness. Mm. Uh, Moses, 40 years. It's the number 40. And that is gamma waves of superconsciousness. When you, all, all of these things are relating to the same thing. They are relating to how the body uses this sacred sexual energy through sexual continents and uses it to thrust upwards for consciousness rather than the spasm of the animal, which is lustful orgasm. That is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not waste the sacred seed. Because that, the seed, the saviour, cerebrospinal fluid is saline. It is saline based. It is saline, gives us the word salvation. It is our salvation. So the saviour, the Christ, is Christ consciousness, is our salvation. That is what they're really telling us. At somewhere in your writings, I saw you make some very definitive statements that religions, the Great religions of the world are really metaphorical narratives carrying the same underlying message as the monuments, but they're 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 key figures, they're leaders, the the personas that we identify in Christianity with Christ, you know, the Buddha, etc. That these are really not real beings; they're metaphorical representations of this process that you've just described. Is that accurate? They are. That they are metaphors for what we can become. Now, when you look at the, the major religions of the world, they are called Abrahamic religions, Abraham. Now, Abraham is also written Abram, which becomes Brahma, which then takes you into Hinduism. Mm. You can talk about, again, Allah, which comes from Ella, which means Alktri. Now, Alktri then takes you into Druidism. Druid means knower of Alktris. It's this old knowledge. It is this, this world tree that connects earth to heaven. It is the, the axis mundi, the, the, the world tree. Now, the, the Egyptian mummy represents the bark of the world tree. It is the connection between earth and heaven. So whichever god you wish to, to bring into this, it, it's, it's a metaphor. You know, Muhammad, Mahomet, which means prophet, which is Baphomet. Now, Baphomet now is, is, is sort of tarred with the brush of Satanism which it is now, but originally, Baphomet was a, a symbol of the mystery schools. It, it means father of the temple. That temple is the hippocampus, which is called the horicle or the holy of holies inside the brain. Now, it, the, the, the hippocampus and the pineal gland is surrounded by the cerebrospinal fluid. Now, water and fluid is the domain of Poseidon and Neptune. That is why you see Neptune riding two seahorses Hippocampus means seahorse. It, it, it is all telling us whichever, whichever direction that I've gone in. Now, I, I really go deep into quantum physics now, but even that is taking me to the same place, which is that all of these ancient cultures were telling us about our own inner divinity and how to reach that inner divinity. Um, if I understand it correctly, you're saying that these major religious figures, which so many of the world revere, really don't exist as personages. They exist more as thought forms, as ideas, as examples, as as teachers, 
in spirit, but not in in, in flesh. Is, is that correct? That is perfectly correct. They are not physical entities. They are representations of inner processes of transmutation. Mm. All right, hold it there, because when we come back, we're going to bring on an old colleague. Well, he's not that old. John Francis, who has some interesting evidence that I think he wants to present to you regarding the possible physicality of at least one of those, you know, religious leaders, um, the Christ. So hold it there. My guest this morning is Michael Feely. We're discussing coding the map, decoding the ancient messages indicative of a higher capability of humans than most humans on planet Earth in 3D reality imagine. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the last half hour of The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday evening, April 18th, 2020. Somehow, every time I say that, I keep thinking of Paul Revere. You know, it was the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year and the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Anyway. Back to our guest, and we've been joined, I hope, I'll pray for the electronics, by John Francis. John Francis is a naval officer, but more important for tonight's discussion, um, he is another citizen scientist who has a wide spectrum of research behind him in various esoteric fields, not the least of which is evidence that, in fact, Christ, among those leading religious figures, actually lived and had a three-dimensional coexistence with humankind for a very important period of time. John, are you with us? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Uh, we hear you five by. Perfect. So, John, Michael, Michael, John. Yes, <laughs> we've met via the Internet. <laughs> ah. <clears throat> it's a wonderful, <throat> actually, absolutely wonderful presentation that uh, Michael gave. He had me at the edge, edge of my seat, literally, for uh, two and a half hours. And um, I'm glad you went into all that background. And he has a tremendous wealth of um, information and, and wisdom. I've read two of, reading two of his books. He's got other books. And he, he's got to come back many times because um, he can <laughs> you can't do this. You can't do this in just three hours. No way. That's right. He can connect a lot of dots in various areas that we, you know, typically or usually discuss. So, um, See, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that likes the interstitial glue. I mean, I wish we had time, Michael, for us to follow you as you went down these various paths and opened various doors and saw various cross connections because the labyrinth of the discovery process to me is as important as what you find at the end of the tunnel. No, absolutely. And it is really a, a deep and complex uh, sort of rabbit hole hmm. of, 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 the, of the connection. But again, the, the, there are other people that are talking about some of these things individually. But what I've been able to do, and I've not seen anybody else that has done that, is, is actually tie it all together as one uh, continuous, one, one message. Now, you put this together in a series of books that you, you published over the, over the years, right? That, that is correct, yes. Okay. Well, those are all available in your section of Radio with Pictures tonight. Remember how you get there, folks. You go to the other side of midnight.com, click on that URL. That will take you to our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, 
with the guest prominently featured for April 18th, Michael Feely. That will take you to his guest page, and you can click on the fast links under that replicated banner at the top of that page to take you to his specific sections. John, we also have a section for you, and I want to segue into this really interesting new evidence regarding the shroud. I'm sorry I didn't have it for my conversation with Andrew Steele last week, but it is so intriguing and so, shall I say, <clears throat> scientific. So why don't you give us some background? How is that this, this new data relevant to our discussion tonight? Okay. It's, it's relevant because it really goes to the heart of um, why, we're on, why we are here on Earth, what is our purpose, and what is the human destiny. And uh, that has been lost uh, and replaced by a transhumanist agenda, which is a wait, wait. I, you know, did, did I did I say Andrew, Dr. Andrew Silverman? I must have said something weird because, anyway, sorry about that. It's okay. Yeah. So um, you know we're at a crossroads now on this planet, a very, and we could go one of two you directions. You think, John? You think? I know, I know for sure. It's very critical. Look around. And, uh, the momentum seems to be going towards a uh, artificial intelligence um, nightmare, I would call it, of control, a misguided attempt to become gods, which we all have the potential to be. And what Michael is doing is he's giving us the esoteric science to take a different path, to take us a path of transcendence and transformation. and. I'm presenting the evidence there of the shroud as um, regardless of what you think the origin of it. It's I see it as a pictorial um, representation of what can have uh, sort of a photograph of a luminous transfiguration of the human body into another, you know, state of consciousness or mode of operation. And yeah, let me just ask, to... let me ask Michael something. Michael, have you followed any of the shroud research going back? To the 1970s? Yes, I have. <clears throat> um, um, my, my opinions on the shroud is that it, it's not Christ, uh, because for, for, for my own research and my own mythology and my, and my own opinions on that is it can't be Christ because Christ is a metaphor for the Christos, for the unifier. But wait, 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 hold it, hold it, hold it. Why are you eschewing physical evidence in favor of a model? I mean, I know it's your model that these are metaphors, but if you're confronted with real, inexplicable physical evidence, doesn't the model have to change? The the, the problem I have with with the actual photographic shroud of Turin is no one can actually possibly know what Christ looked like because the story of Christ was written 400 years after his supposed uh, entity on Earth. Yeah, but wait, 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 wait. We've been talking all evening about you get downloaded messages from somewhere. Why couldn't those writers have downloaded messages of exactly what Christ looked like? They downloaded the exact same message of what I'm saying about the the esoteric science of transmutation. But when when you when you look at the 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 picture of Christ that is given to us, it bears striking resemblance to Caesar Borgia, who was the son of Pope Alexandra. I think he was the fourth or something like that. So that really is the the image of Christ that is that is given to the consciousness of humanity. Now, that, that, that to me really, uh, th those, who, those who've written the Bible are genius. 
they're absolutely nothing less than genius because the way in which they've compiled the CCTV information, the way in which they've, it, it's just absolute genius. The, the way in which, you know, in, in, in the, the the, the, the one one of the versions of the Bible, you know, we have Christ being mentioned 555 times, which again is an important number. You have all of this. What about 555? Yes. Well, so Christ in, in the in the that happens King to be the height of the Washington Monument in feet as well. Exactly. Built by so Masons. Five, five, five. Preserved ancient knowledge, etc. Okay, go ahead. So so the people who've done this are, are genius, and and all of this is is as you said rightly is incorporated into all of this. When you look at the Statue of Liberty, you know, the spiral staircase is the double helix of DNA, which is transmutated through through knowledge. You have the crown, which is the, the, the radiation. You have the flame. You have underneath that, when you actually look at it and analyze the picture, it's actually a phallic, which then goes back to sexual alchemy, the crestos, the fire. So when you look at the geniuses who have written this Bible and they've encoded all of this message at, you know, I mean, another example of that is the number 33. The number 33 is an esoteric, important numerological number. Now we have Christ supposedly died at age 33 on the cross. We have the word Amen that has a numerical value of 33. We have, again, I'm not going to go into Roswell, but that was on the 33rd parallel. When you look at the Bible, the 33rd mention of Jacob in the Bible mentions Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder is the human spine that has 33 vertebrae. The way in which they've encrypted this esoteric knowledge is nothing less than genius. So you're talking resonance patterns, okay? Um, yeah. So okay, let me, I'm, John. I'm I'm kind of setting up, you know, as the lawyers say, foundation for what you're going to talk about in a minute. Okay. Um, I've had a lot of scientists on, including some from that original committee, who talk about the image on the shroud as being energy, not brushstrokes, not paint not glitter, not any normal physical process. And Dr. Silverman, you know, last week laid it out in quite interesting detail. The reason I brought John on tonight is because John had access to additional physical scientific analyses of that image and has come up with, this investigator that John's going to talk about has come up with a really striking additional detail that's not part of any of the literature at the moment. John, you're on. Yes. Um, first of all, I want to say that I'm totally in agreement with all those, the esoteric science that Michael just uh, laid out very expertly. And I also am in agreement with the importance that he gives to separating the uh, historical figure, uh, Jesus, with the um, sort of the cosmic energy, if you want to call it the cosmic Christ or the central sun or, or whatever that is. And he's also correct at pointing out that a great failing of the uh, the religions are to focus too much on the historical uh, scenarios and not the deeper uh, symbolic meaning of the stories. And and that has led us with, a, uh, given us a religion that's very uh, impotent and not powerful or transforming and doesn't allow us to really neutralize the negative forces that are in the world that are so predominant right now, leading us down a very dangerous path. So I'm in agreement with that. Um, and so, you know, regardless of who this is, I'm just looking at this image as a sort of a message in, uh, of, of 
how a body can be enlightened. That's what I'm looking at. And uh, although I do think it's very important, I was going to ask Michael, he can answer later on, but, you know, we have the esoteric knowledge, but there is a role for teachers in this whole process and, and true leaders, which we don't have in the world right now. We don't have it in religion. The beings of higher consciousness that uh, are important to really facilitate and initiate the energies that you need to have to work with all this esoteric knowledge. So that's where I'm getting at is not taking away the importance of, you know, teachers and beings that come to this earth to demonstrate for us what is possible. You see, uh, I think there have been beings, avatars that have come to the earth and have demonstrated to us what is possible to, you know, to inspire us and also, you know, through resonance, facilitated the process. Now, going to this research, what's, what's interesting about this research is, and it actually ties into uh, um, Michael's book, um, Alchemy of the Gods, in a surprising way, page six. <laughs> if he's got it there, he can turn to it. Okay, so you look at the shroud, and what you see is that the image has a right hand, which is unusually long. Now, people have noticed that compared to the left hand. And um, it was thought, well, maybe this is a birth defect or something like that. Well, due to some new techniques, which uh, Dr. Catalano has developed, what he's actually shown is that what looks like a very long hand is, is actually a double image. It's a stroboscopic image of, of a hand that moved, you know, in, in, during the interval of the burst of light, okay, that created this image. And it moved up, you know, a little forward in forward direction to give us an elongated appearance. And you can look at all those items, you know. So, John, let me, let me stop you there. The energy burst that Silverman described last weekend. Right. Mm-hmm. That that singe just the top fibers yes. of the yes. linen mm-hmm. and the shadows of the other fibers mm-hmm. kept the image just on the very surface. Right. That burst of energy, if if this physicist right. in Italy is right, mm-hmm. may have come not as one burst, but as pulses. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying well, is... Well, if you have movement, that's recorded between the pulses. That's how you get your stroboscopic effect. Okay. Uh, I was thinking more, I mean, I could be wrong. I was thinking more of a smearing effect where within the single burst, there was a movement. So you're actually... Well, that's not a stroboscopic uh, effect then. It's a definitional thing. That would be a double image. That would be a double image, yeah. Okay. So, you know... we can look, I've got to look at that a little more closely. Well, since all the energies that I've been analyzing, you know, and the pyramids and all that are all pulses, mm-hmm. why would that be unique and not be pulsed? Okay. It's, it's back to frequency, right, Michael? Yeah. Yeah, yes, it is. And, and again, you know, energy is the key. And, and of course, there, there are teachers, there are people who've been enlightened, there are people who transmute themselves through these practices. And, and there is evidence of that. You know, we, we also have spontaneous combustion as well where where the carbon body becomes crystalline too fast mm. so you, ha- you have all of these bursts of energies that that are scientifically possible i think the energy dispute is is who the image is uh you know the, there's no dispute that there is a shred of terrain there's no no dispute that there is an image on there but but the obviously the, the, the dispute is is that the christ mm. and and that really is the dispute now mm. 
me personally, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier about reality and consciousness is subjective. It's really an opinion. Mm -hmm. But my opinion is based on the esoteric knowledge. I mean, when, when you look at, you know, the likes of Pope Leo the Tenth, that's been documented as saying mm -hmm. it has served as well, this myth of Christ. Mm -hmm. When you look at the current Pope, Pope Francis, in 2017, he says, Jesus is metaphorical, not literal. Hmm. You know, so well, but Michael, that's that's assuming the shroud is a Middle Eastern artifact, and in fact, there is science that says it's much older, two thousand plus years, and that's a whole. Do you know, John? After we did the show with Dr. Silverman, I got a message, a very long message from a former Benedictine monk, who actually is able to document with inside leaked uh, emails and and letters the whole concept of faking the radiocarbon dating to prevent the world from knowing the shroud was much, much older than the 14th century. And it, he has such an impressive case. He's written a book about this. I'm going to bring him on and have him do another whole evening on the shroud because if, if he really proves what I was, shall we say, proposing, that the threads that were selected so the radiocarbon tests were deliberately selected to give a false date. Mm -hmm. That puts an entire, pun intended, new light on this whole subject. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to have, please send me the email. You know, oh, I will, I will. Yeah, yeah, and I'll look into it and, and whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm not really attached to the idea that that's Christ, quite frankly. I'm not attached to it at all because uh, I – I'm more, I'm more with so you're thinking it could be more a symbolic representation of a process as opposed mm -hmm. to a personage. Yeah, it could be a lot of things could happen. It could have, you know, it could have happened you know, last week or something and who knows. But, uh, you know, I'm more with Michael focusing on the science and the, you know, behind it. Uh, and I, what I see in the Bible, looking at the parables and a lot of different things, I mean, I see the science there in the Bible, in the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible and other scriptures too. I see the science that makes that possible to, to transform the body by light. I see that science there in a very great detail in the parables, and they all talk about don't hide your light under a bushel basket. There's all these different <laughs> in the IB single. There's so many different things to talk about light. And also the Tibetan uh, monks that do the rainbow body. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a whole ancient tradition of all this. And so I'm not really hung up on, you know, who that is. I mean, the thing is, we've got the science. This is kind of where I'm at now. I want to address this to Michael, because we're at this, you know, historical crossroads. We have the science now that can bring in a wonderful world in terms of human transformation and so forth and, and new energy sources. And... We have one group, or the, it seems like the most powerful group that's leading us down this, uh, this, this path that's, I see it as rather destructive and anti-life, um, you know, anti-Christ, anti if you want to say it in terms of cosmically speaking. And, you know, we have the science. I'm saying, well, what, what else do we need to, to avert this, this train wreck? I mean, are there, being, you know, are there beings that are going to sort of step in and level the playing field? Because right now they feel the playing field is really in favor of those who have negative technology that want to turn humans into robots and eliminate humans and have a very misguided idea of, of, of what it means to, to evolve spiritually. And um, so 
this knowledge, the leaders of our religions don't have this this knowledge, or they have it, they're not applying it, or don't understand it. So, I'm kind of wondering, Michael. You how mean you, you mean you mean John in the world today? In the world today, right? Yeah. So I was just wondering, Michael, how do you? Uh, what's going to happen to to sort of get us in this other direction? Well, where remember, the knowledge early, you have is going to be applied. And, and earlier in the program, we talked about, and Michael brought it up. That he an ambassador. Oh yeah, to I be know an ambassador, you gotta have someone to be an ambassador to. Okay, Michael, Michael there's your cue. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, uh, we, we we've always had the science to do this. That the 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 science on how to transmute genetically, physically, spiritually is written in stone, literally all over the world. Mm. It's written inside down here. It's written all over the world. Uh, that that's why we have. You mean all over the solar system? Well, yes, yes. And we, we have it all over the place. Now, the, the, what, what the, should we say, the dark forces, for want of a better word, have done through this coronavirus, whatever its origin turns out to be, they have played most of their cards in one go, whereas this side of the desk, no one has played any cards yet because we're just waiting and waiting and waiting to see what happens. So they've basically... Well, you know the old cliche, right? Make no wine course. before it's yeah. time. Exactly. So now, now is the time to sit and wait and see what to react to. Now, I was told in a channeled message, uh, and I quote, we are not here to rescue you. We are here to help you to rescue yourselves. There's a, there's a big difference. Now, huge, what, huge, of course. It's a huge difference. And of course, what that means to me is in science, you have spontaneous self-organization. What that means is when two frequencies meet, at some point in that communion, the lower frequency will rise itself to that higher frequency. Both frequencies will become one at the higher frequency. The very presence of higher dimensional beings in our reality, in our presence, is raising the vibration of humanity. We have just had a million people meditating just a, a week or two ago. Now, I know scientific fact that that meditation changed the resonance system, the human resonance system of Earth. Now, the human resonance system is important to the consciousness level of the planet. Things are happening, and, and more and more people. Be, as a result of this, the world has become still. But as a result of the world becoming still, people are changing the neural pathways of routine. They are changing the chemical drug, the chemical fix of routine of, of the brain, because they're doing things differently. Now, when you step into the unknown, that is how you expand. But things mm. are really happening. Uh, gentlemen, we are about five minutes from the end of the show. I have an important announcement I want to make in the last couple of minutes relating to what Kinthea put on both websites tonight, the homepage and tonight's guest page. But, Michael, I believe there was a pope not so long ago who talked about that most people, meaning the people of the world, lead quiet lives of desperation. We have been, for the last century or two, wage slaves. We have no time to think, no time to pause, no time to ponder. This forced isolation and stillness on the world with all the media we have for interconnection and research and boredom turning into curiosity is giving, at least as I see it, a major portion of humanity a pause to think and reflect and maybe think bigger thoughts than they have ever thought before. 
Absolutely. Cogito, ergo, sum. Mm-hmm. I think, therefore, I am. John? Yes, no, it's... Uh, yes, no, which is it? No, no, well, I, <laughs> I think Michael's answer was very good about how we, we might get this uh, this transformation. I just hope the energy just continues to build up. Um, Don't you think the good guys are going to win? Come well, on. Well, the cavalry, you know, there's a scenario where the good guys right off into the sunset and those, and those who have created the, the mess here get to stay here and deal with it. That's another scenario. Mm. So I don't know what, where that, how that plays out, but um, um, you know, so I'm, we, it's another discussion. I like the, I think Michael has a lot to share on this. So I hope he comes back and, and we can uh, talk about how we can, you know, people can meditate and collectively align more with this other, you know, the positive forces in, sort of practical mm. terms because you know the, we have the science and it's just a matter of applying it so that's what okay. i'm looking for michael you got 60 uh, seconds what do you want to close absolutely. with what do you want to leave our folks with tonight <laughs> absolutely agree uh biblically if the in is full other words if the mind is full you're not in a place to transmute this information the the, the in needs to be empty which is the clear mind so all of these ancients which I believe were not ancient civilizations that put these monuments there. I think they were used by ancient civilizations. That is a higher knowledge, a higher intelligence for us to escape this third dimensional frequency. If we listen to it, if we follow it, we will escape. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We are out of time. Okay, my announcement. Tomorrow morning on a program based in New York City, actually being broadcast among others on the Salem Radio Network, WABC, the biggest station in the United States, I'm going to be on something called Cat's Roundtable. Um, you can see in the two links that Kinti has put up, both on the homepage and the um, guest page, uh, ways to listen. If you're in those cities, you can listen on the air. If you're not in those cities, you'll be able to listen on the Internet afterwards. Uh, John and I, he's the host, talk about a number of interesting different things, including some radical possibilities for solving the coronavid crisis tune in and tomorrow night my old friend richard grossinger and i are going to talk about cabbages king sealing wax and where the heck are we going so until then third star on the left straight on till morning good night everyone <laughs>